Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, August 3rd, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Reb. Good morning. So today is the day that Donald Trump makes his way back to uh, a courthouse. Hey, before we do that, I want to go back to something that um, I, I kind of got involved with yesterday. Uh, I told you, I'm a Gamecock, but I got a lot of Clemson fans and friends who are, um, uh, we've just been friends all of our lives, and I, they just made a bad choice early in life and, and went off to the dark <laughs> side. I mean, it's not as bad as being a Democrat, but I mean, you could be a Tiger fan and, and a Democrat. And they would say the same thing about you, but go yeah, ahead. Well, I mean, I'm sure they would. Uh, but but there's a, um, all we're doing is ex- exchanging pleasantries, right? Right. right. I mean, this, this is um, the illusion of conflict. It's not really um, conflict. It would be friendly conflict. But I was reading yesterday, someone sent me an article about the Big Ten. And, you know, Clemson, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the Gamecocks drew drew a straight flush. Um, the SEC was in expansion mode. Florida State was their number one target. And Bobby Bowden didn't want any part of that. I mean, he wanted to win championships. He felt it was easier to win championships. This is before the TV deals and the championship games and all those other sorts of things. So when Bowden said no at Florida State, South Carolina obviously said yes, no question about it. We'd love to be, and it's changed the program forever. But it's not anywhere near the same program. Uh, money's the answer now. What's the question? So when you look at all the expansions and you know the um, ah, the improvements of amenities and uh, it's been SEC money. I mean that's what's been the driver of this. There's no doubt that Ipte and the Gamecock Club carry their weight. I mean on both fronts, Ipte does its job, the Gamecock Club does its job. But you can't squeeze but so much money out of the state. You just can't. Um, so the SEC network was launched. It became extremely profitable. Um, it just means more. Became kind of a um, a brand. Uh, you know, I think it means even more to some than it does to, to others. But that's a show for another day. We're in a league of renegades and outlaws. I'll just leave it there. Um, rules be damned is what a lot of our um, opposition says. But anyway. Um, and, and I said, not at the time, but I've talked to Clemson friends and fans for the last decade, and I said, guys, it looks to me like, and they would agree, it looks to me like there are two conferences positioning themselves to be uber-dominant, to have so much more money, you know, for the programs to function and operate, and and Clemson looks to be kind of, you know, called in the middle. Um, I think Clemson made a, excuse me, I think the ACC made a bad decision when it allowed Notre Dame to become half-pregnant. I mean, the ACC should have said, either you're in or you're not. You're going to be a football school, a member in football. They wanted to maintain that that NBC, very lucrative contract they had. It's all about the money. Ain't about running down the (laughs) hill. Ain't about 2001. What? Uh, Well, I mean, it's not. It is for, what, 10 seconds every Saturday, seven times a year, running down the hill. You know, 2001. No, this is all about um, the money. But, but there's been some references made lately about Clemson and the Big Ten. And, I mean, I read pieces that say, no, it's an expansion west. It's Oregon and Washington. Uh, the Big Ten is a kind of a – I think the Big Ten's probably done a better job, Reb, of identifying themselves as a national conference. I mean, from sea to shining sea. Southern California, UCLA, uh, Maryland, Penn State, and, and, and a lot of schools in between – the, the Southeastern Conference is largely, I mean, it's not all about that. I mean, Oklahoma, um, give me another school, well, that'd be about it, wouldn't it? Missouri, well, I mean, I guess Missouri's not in, in the South. But other than that, it's been a regional league. I mean, it, it really has maintained a dominant footprint in the Southeast region of America, which is a hotbed 
for college football. But but now it looks like Clemson is in a quandary because there's a kind of a handshake agreement for the member institutions. There's nothing written in the bylaws. I know this to be true. There's nothing in the bylaws that says, you know, you can't, um, South Carolina can't stop Clemson from becoming a member of the SEC. Florida can't stop Florida State from becoming a member uh, of the SEC. Georgia can't stop Georgia Tech from becoming a member. Um, but there's been a handshake. I mean, I know that. Somebody asked me yesterday, well, how did A&M, how did Texas get in? They made, when, when A&M became a member, I know this to be true. When A&M became a member, they told them on the front end, if we ever expand and Texas is interested, it's too big a brand to pass on. You don't have that kind of veto power. I mean, Texas is arguably the bit, one of the three biggest brands. I didn't say they're the best program. I understand they've had their issues, but in the brand business, I mean, that, that Longhorn's a big deal. I mean, that rust orange is a big deal, um, similar to Southern California, Michigan, Ohio State. I guess Florida would be similar to that. I mean, it is a big school, a lot of money, prestigious league. Um, but but now Clemson is rumored to be engaged with the with the Big Ten. I don't see it. I, I just don't see that for me. I mean, you know, I'm not a Clemson fan. I don't have any idea. Uh, well, I do because I texted with some yesterday what the fan base feels about joining the Big Ten. I understand the financial benefit. I mean, it's going to be uh, the, the next six years of the Big Ten, they'll have about an $8 million a year per team advantage over the SEC. That There's some Fox money there. Uh, Fox owns 61%, I think, of the Big Ten network. And in that purchase agreement, the Big Ten schools share that proceed. So they're going to have about an $8 million a year advantage over the SEC schools while the Fox Big Ten Network deal is ironed out. Once again, forget running down the hill in 2001. This is all about the uh, the moolah. But, but, and I understand Clemson, you know, wanting to go to one of the two leagues that have such a financial advantage over everybody else. But if you're a Clemson fan, I mean, do you want to go to, uh, do you want to go to College Station to play a lacrosse match? Do, do you want to go to, 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 to Madison, Wisconsin in November for a basketball, for a home-and-home? Home? I mean, I'm saying geographically and it's just it seems to me to be a, a reach i mean i understand the money i get that um but but it's just such a cultural and geographic misfit am i wrong i mean what, what am i missing here i mean let, let's be honest i'm a gamecock clemson is an sec school not of the sec clemson is probably more of an sec school than south carolina <laughs> I mean, it's a football yeah. dominant mentality the gamecocks invest in olympic sports and they're more serious about their Title IX considerations. <laughs> They've always felt they were a little more cosmopolitan than their friends uh, in, in the in the uh, in the what would that be the Northwest quadrant of the state, mm-hmm. uh, the westernmost quadrant of our state. Um, yeah, but the Gamecocks have always felt a little more cosmopolitan than the uh, than the Tigers have, and they ain't no cosmopolitan in, in in the SEC. I mean, it's just not. I guess Vanderbilt would be that, but they're just there to keep the SAT score above the. Um, <laughs> Uh, above the legal average is not the national True. average it's the legal average <laughs> i mean you got to have a it, when i was in school it's 2.0 and go uh to get that 2.0 and go man uh vanderbilt has a cheer that's all right that's okay y'all will work for us one day um <laughs> 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 so, so that they're there just to kind of 
keep the um the, the league's GPA keep, in a place keep, that makes them legally keep, keep his honest. Yeah, well, bit, I mean, it yeah. makes you legal. I mean, it's, it's like the, it's like the breathalyzer. You know, <laughs> if you're above a point eight, you're drunk driving. Well, I mean, if Vanderbilt wasn't in the league, I'm not sure the SEC would qualify as um as institutions of higher learning. But they're damn good in football. <laughs> And and they're, and they're getting really good in it's basketball, funny. and they're and they're good in baseball. Anyway, um, I just think it's interesting that there's this big you know um, debate now about the Big Ten expanding, Clemson and Florida State potentially being the two of the teams that they're interested in to have an interest in. And if you're Clemson, I, I guess you kind of got to take the um, take the money and run, right? I mean, geography be damned. Um, you know the um, the culture of, of the Southeast juxtaposed to where the the Big Ten has grown, and I don't have any idea what Clemson fans feel about this other than the three or four I was texting with yesterday, and they are torn. I mean, they're like, wow, man. I mean, it increases the revenue exponentially. I mean, it's a big increase in revenue. But do I want to go to Southern Cal and play a girls' volleyball game on a Wednesday night, go to Maryland and play a lacrosse match, um, go to Wisconsin? And I mean, it would be exciting to go to Columbus and Ann Arbor to play football, no doubt about it. Just like I'm excited as a Gamecock fan to go to Norman, Oklahoma uh, next year. I think South Carolina goes to Norman, Oklahoma next year. Austin, Texas to play uh, Baton Rouge. I mean, there's some intrigue to go to some of those storied places. Columbus and Ann Arbor would obviously be um, two of those locations. But I'm just thinking as a Clemson fan, wow. I mean, is that really, when I look at my schedule and I've got a game, you know, in two games, three games in the Midwest, it's just and some of the other sports, some of the non-football sports are going to be, I don't know. I mean, it's just, um, I think Clemson finds themselves in a, not a mess. I mean, it's, they're, they're a brand. I mean, they're, they're a very, I mean, they're three-time national champion, two-time recent national champion in football. But they're in a conference that seems to be getting drowned out by these other two conferences. And Clemson, Florida State, and North Carolina have the most to lose. I mean, those are the three schools. Um, you know, Clemson has a national reputation in football. Florida State has a national reputation in football. North Carolina is probably one of the three or four biggest brands with that Jumpman and Nike and Michael Jordan and all that. It's not football, but North Carolina is a huge brand in the uh, in the world of college athletics. I just I just thought about you know texting with my Clemson friends and uh, and I think there's a very interesting debate to be had about if you are a Clemson authority. I mean, if you're someone at Clemson with the ability to make some of these big decisions. That will affect or impact your program for the next half century. Uh, you, I mean, I can tell you what I'd do, and maybe this is what they're doing. I would convince Birmingham. That's where SEC headquarters is. I would convince Birmingham that the Big Ten is genuinely interested, because I don't think the SEC takes kindly to the Big Ten having a big <laughs> footprint in the Southeast. I mean, I'd like coming into their Steve. territory. Yeah, I mean, I would if I were Clemson. Maybe that's what they're doing. I'd hire me some yeah. marketing firm that knows what they're doing. I'd pay them whatever I had to pay them, and I would conv- I'd leak more media stories than you can imagine <laughs> about Clemson meeting with the Big Ten, Florida State meeting with the Big Ten, and I'd force the SEC's hand. I mean, I really and truly would. I would force SEC headquarters to go to uh, Athens, Columbia, and Gainesville and say, hey, let's sit down and work this out. We don't need the Big Ten uh, peeing in our backyard, <laughs> so to speak. Keep them above the Mason Dixon line, and we'll dominate below. And maybe that's what Clemson's doing. I mean, maybe they're playing a game here. Maybe they're making it appear that they're genuinely interested in the Big Ten. The Big Ten is genuinely interested in Clemson, and get a call from Birmingham. Uh, yeah, that, that's just—I mean, that—that's the way I would be engaging both. I'd have half my team in 
Big Ten world, I'd have my other camped out in, uh, in Birmingham, kind of knocking on the door. I'd probably spend a little time in Columbia, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. talking to some of the Gamecock brass about is there some way we can, you know, uh, can't, what did Rodney King say? Can't we all oh, get along? Get, yeah, get we, along. Can't, can't we all just get along? Because <laughs> the last thing Clemson needs to do is get left in the dark. And it just looks to me like these two leagues are going to have such a financial advantage. Um, I mean, the Big Ten, for I'm telling you, for four or five years, they're going to have a pretty serious advantage over the SEC. I mean, $8 million bucks is $8 million. Bucks. But the Big Ten and SEC will have somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $35 million per year more to spend on athletics. I mean, that's a huge I – mean, that's um, – I mean, that's a quarter of a billion, that's a third of a billion dollars in less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine what you can bond, you know, when you know you've got that cash coming in, that revenue stream to support whatever sort of um, expansions or, uh, you know, um, additions you want to make to your uh, to your facilities. You asked me yesterday, and I want, I want to take a break and then come back down. There. You asked me yesterday, mm-hmm. so how do you personally feel? Um, you know, when, when you when you have a day like we had yesterday and the day before, and I'm talking about the day before, I mean, Trump will be arraigned today. I mean, so for the second time, we'll watch, you know, our former American president walk into a courtroom and be arraigned by the legal system. The judicial system is, is working, so they say. Um, you asked me yesterday how I felt personally. Forget right. the job. Right. Um, I feel, I thought about it yesterday afternoon. I feel like Rush Limbaugh says he felt. I feel defeated. I feel that no matter how hard I try to convince our audience and the people that kind of correspond with our worldview that this is going to get, I just feel, I, I don't understand how Americans believe this is okay. And, and I just feel, I mean, remember Limbaugh said, you know, toward the end of his run, mm-hmm. um, I just, I can't believe there's still that many liberals. I mean, how have I not convinced people to think more along the lines of the way I think. I mean, it's not, I'm in the, not, I'm certainly not in the business of, of brainwashing or indoctrination. I don't want to be in the business of that, but, but I do think that there's a, a, a certain point in time in our, in our existence professionally that we wonder if we're making a difference. And when you see uh, Twitter, Facebook, and the, the mainstream media, some of the Republican former office holders say the things they do, it frustrates it, 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 you you kind of get this defeatist uh, attitude, and you're like, man, I, I don't want to do this anymore because I'm not making a difference. I mean, if, if half the country still can't see this for what it is, I just give up. I mean, I'm not giving up, but you ask me how I felt. Right. I mean, I'm too stupid to give up, um, <laughs> but but that's how I feel Well, I today. knew you'd give some political analysis, obviously. That's what you do here, But I, I was because I was feeling an emotion of anger about it yesterday. I'm not angry, Rev. I just feel helpless. I and feel I, and defeated. I want to see how you felt. I, I, I'm looking around, and, and, I, and I think I understand some of these issues. I mean, if I tell you uh, about campaign, I mean, I just talked about Clemson and the Big Ten and the SEC. I think I understand that to some degree. I mean, I've lived a lot of that. I mean, I've been a fan of the Gamecocks all my life. Clemson's been an arch rival. I have the, some of the nearest and dearest friends in my world that are Clemson fans. And so I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of that situation. And, um, and how it could eventually work out. I don't know anything. I mean, I don't know what Clemson will do. I don't know what the SEC or Big Ten will do. But, but when I say these are things to be considered, there, there's, some, uh, there's some point of view I have that is informed, Well, I feel the same way about politics. Um, I've dedicated a lot of time to better understand. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I've told Rev this 100 times. If I did run for office now, I would be 
uh, a million times more equipped to do the job than I was when I ran. I mean, there's a little beauty in not knowing what you're doing. I mean, there, there is. I mean, there's a little beauty in being, uh, you know, not not as conditioned by, by what the um, the predeterminations uh, and they've been made. So, in other words, you go there as a new guy. I'll never forget when I got elected uh, to county council. I mean, I, I served one term, half of a second term, um, and then I ran for lieutenant governor shortly after I got elected to the first term. And I went to a um, to a general assembly. Uh, Mike J and uh, Philip was in. Philip was still in the house. Jay was not there. Mike obviously was not there yet. But we went to a retreat. They invited me to come to retreat. It was a Republican caucus gathering, and they basically sat me down and said, "Don't come up here trying to be a hot shot now." I mean, you hadn't done this long. I mean, we've checked your resume. <laughs> it, it, it's it's not very. I mean, it, it's short. I mean, you you've got a pretty short resume. I think you've registered to vote at forty. Got elected to county council, and, and now you're the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Don't come in here with guns a-blazing, you know. So they reminded you of your place. Well, they did. They wow. did. Well, I mean, and so, so what I'm saying is now, and, and to be honest with you, I couldn't challenge that because I didn't have any sort of understanding of what lied ahead, what what was expected of me. Uh, the Republicans were just making sure, you know, you're, you're in this club. You're not one of us, but you'll preside over one of the bodies, and there'll be times we need things done a certain way. And we just need to drink that beer, and we need to make sure you understand, <laughs> you know, whose team you're on, so to speak. But but if I did it now, I bring an abundance of knowledge, an abundance of understanding, an abundance of of interactions. Um, I mean, I'm not running for office, but but having done this for 11 years, 12 years now, and spending 20 hours a, a week on the radio, another 20 or 25 studying, trying to understand, uh, trying to better position my opinion, I would be far more far more effective as an elected leader today because I do have a vast knowledge and understanding and opinion. I mean, my opinion comes from my, my knowledge and understanding, but, um, but I just feel defeated. I mean, I feel like how, I mean, I, I, I've been told I got the gift of gab. I'm not lazy. So, so I've worked diligently to try and understand these issues and explain and discuss with our listeners and 50% of the America is still, still liberal. I mean, 50% of America still believe that we're right-wing radio, we're radical, we're extreme, we're out of the mainstream, that there's not much I say on this show out of the mainstream. I mean, there's some provocative things we said. There, there are some things we say for entertainment purposes. There are some things we say to try and stir up a debate and create a conversation. But, but I'm not radical. I'm not extreme. I'm not a right-winger. And, and today I feel like one because half the country perceived me to be one and, and that's the defeatism. I mean, that's why I feel so, so defeated. So, you know, Limbaugh was a million times better than I am. He's the, um, I mean, he's the gold standard. I, I guess he's Elvis of talk radio. I mean, he's the, he's the original item, the original um, issue, and kind of a supernatural talent. But he said he felt defeated. And he, and he said, kind of burdened by, by that degree of we're losing, man. I mean, we're, I'm not giving up. And I don't think Limbaugh would have ever given up had he not been diagnosed with lung cancer and passed away. Um, but, but I understand exactly what he said. How can I not convince these people what is right before their very eyes? How do 50% of Americans still believe that Donald Trump is getting treated fairly? I mean, that is, it's bizarre to me, but they do. I mean, look at the polling. 50% of Americans believe that Trump should be in prison. He's one of the most horrific and horrendous criminals politics has ever known. And then they're treating him just as they would treat anybody else. How can you believe that? And how can I not, and people who do it, how can we not convince you to think otherwise? Take a break. Back in a few.
888-346-610937. Someone's on the call. Someone's on the phone. Let's go to the call. <laughs> it's uh, Charles in Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good morning. One thing you need to keep in mind about the citizens of this country, the vast majority of Americans do not know that Bill Clinton was impeached. The vast majority of Americans don't know anything about Hunter Biden's laptop. The vast majority have never heard of Devin Archer. All they are exposed to all day is Trump, but Trump, Trump did this, Manafort, and you have it, you hit January 6th, you hear it from some of your callers that are calling him. That's all they know. So until we get a real media in this country, we're going to be faced with this situation. Um, I believe journalism in America died in about 2007 when Barack Obama was running for president. Um, that's just my opinion. What I called about was Clemson. And all these, all this extra money's great, and I'm all for uh, moving, whether it's to the SEC or the Big Ten. And the Big Ten does provide a whole lot more money uh, for a long period of time. But if it is the Big Ten, I just have one request and one request only. I think we should play Ohio State every year, and the winner gets control of Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head until the next game. <laughs> I'm with you, and I'd be a Clemson fan, Charles. <laughs> I, I, I'm not wearing an orange T-shirt for that it. one, no question about it. <laughs> but that is very well said and very well explained. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate it, my man. And, and I think about people like Charles. I'm a diehard Clemson fans, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're kind of in a – I mean, you're in a – not a pickle. I mean, I'm not arguing that. Clemson will be fine. I mean, they have a loyal fan following. They have a big brand. I mean, they, they'll be fine. But this is a big moment in that program's history. You know, if these two leagues are, and I think Charles just said it, these two leagues are probably really beginning to separate themselves financially from everybody else. And and so so if you're Clemson, I mean, if you're Wake Forest, it doesn't matter with all due respect. If you're Duke, it doesn't matter. But if you're Clemson, I mean, it does. I mean, if you fill football, if you if if you fund a budget like they do, fill a stadium like they do, um, support their program like they do, you belong in one of those two conferences. I mean, you do. You just do. I mean, that, that, that they need to be in the SEC or Big Ten, and you know they're they're kind of in the they're in the ah, they're on the ledge. You know, falling one way or falling another. Does this conference have any interest in Clemson? Does this conference have any interest in in Clemson? You know, what what are the benefits of this league and that league? And um, and as I said earlier, I'd love to tell you the Gamecocks were in, you know in, in in top demand and were a hot ticket. No, I mean that South Carolina basically got extended an invitation to the SEC because Bobby Bowden didn't want any part of playing that schedule. I mean he didn't, and I, you know I understand Bowden's point of view. You know I don't want to run that 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 if I if I want to win. 11 games and play for a national championship, I like my chances in this league a lot better than I do um, in, in that other league. Let, let's go down the road to defeated. Speaking of game, guys. Um, anyway, they've had a good run in recruiting. I mean, they re Charles sent me a, a very kind text earlier this week. It might have been toward the end of last week. Um, not congratulating, but speaking to how well Shane Beamer's doing on the recruiting trail. I mean, Shane Beamer reminds me of Dabo Sweeney a dozen years ago. Every day is the 4th of July. You know, there, there's greatness in this team. Um, and it gets, it comes off as hokey at times. I mean, it does. And it comes off as a little bit immature at times. But it worked for Dabo. 
and it seems to be uh, working, you know, for for Beamer in his early days at um at South Carolina. So let's go back to because there's a lot of things we can discuss today. If if I try to get myself out of defeated mode, and I try to say, well, the you know the future is brighter. Charles just said something. There's no way I put faith in the in in the media. I mean, the, the media is not going to find its soul. I mean, there's not going to be a big gathering in, you know, kind of like the World, the World Economic Forum does in Davos. The members of the media aren't going to get together and say, guys, we've lost our way. I mean, we've become somewhat of a propaganda arm for the leftists, the, the liberal agenda, the progressive movement. Um, it's time we get back to doing the job that we are required to do. No, I mean, that's not going to happen. I mean, journalism is liberal in nature. It's always been left of center. I mean, it's in the tank now. I mean, it's completely and totally an extension of the DNC. I mean, it carries the water for liberal America. Um, that's not going to change. Something that could happen, and this is the long game, Rev. I mean, this is extreme long game. We know that 232 turns into 235 because of reapportionment. In other words, the states that lost um, population, the census, uh, their electoral representation, electoral college representation, reflects that loss to population. So we had a net gain of three in what we'll call red state USA or, you know, red USA, blue USA. Um, that will continue, it seems to be. Um, Charles is talking about, you know, the winner of the Ohio State-Clemson game gets to control uh, the grand strand. I wouldn't wear it two days, but I may wear a tiger paw for a day. I mean, I, you know, just on behalf of that cause. <laughs> I don't know if I do T C L E M T whatever that cheer is they do. I don't know if I'd do that, but I might would um don the tiger paw on my on my uh, on my hat just for that day, just for that uh three hours. But th- there is a chance, because I've looked last night, that there is a chance that that in the next census it's plus four. So in twenty thirty we go from plus we go from well let's say two thirty five is the I mean, 232 is now 235. Mm-hmm. Georgia's red. I mean, I'm predicting that. Georgia's red. I'll explain that in just a couple of minutes. Um, 251. Uh, so you're 251 today. If if there's still this mass migration of people from blue states, now we don't need liberal yahoos moving to red state USA. I mean, we need the most conservative people in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, we need them leaving um, some of those states and coming to um, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Alabama. Um, you, you really need that migration to not be people just tired of the snow, but tired of the snow, the taxes, you know, the government overreach, the expensive cost of living. They come down 235, excuse me, 251, and I'm putting Georgia in the category. I understand, I understand the African-American population in Atlanta. I, I, I totally understand that. It is a place that many, many African-Americans who have moved south have moved to. I mean, that, that's the deal in, in Gwinnett and Fulton County. I mean, it is a, there's an enormous African-American population, but there's a lot of rural Georgia that, that is growing now. Some of, the, some of the mountain areas in Georgia are beginning to grow, not like the coast of South Carolina, but, but you know, growing. So if, if Tennessee picks up one, um, Georgia picks up one, and it becomes more red for, for the migration of people. You all of a sudden go into day one because Ohio and Florida, that's the big key. I mean, we're not fighting over Florida and Ohio. Florida, I mean, Florida's kind of the um, the case study for what I'm talking about. 
I mean, it, it's redder now than it has been in my lifetime. I mean, Florida's never been. I mean, it's not up for grabs. The Democrats won't spend much money in Florida. They won't spend much money in Ohio. I mean, they've kind of given up on those two. Um, so if we can Both take those states used to be kind of swingy. Didn't sure, they? sure. I mean, who wins Florida wins the presidency. Right. Not the case anymore. Uh, remember the the statistic: no Republican since whenever has won the presidency without winning Ohio. I mean, the, you know, the um, got to break that that blue wall, that Rust Belt area um, down. But no, if if you put Georgia in the in the column, and the reason I'm confident in Georgia is Robert Cahaley has argued to me some of the some of the analytics. What happened in COVID can't happen again. I, you know, I want to go back and, and review some of that in the 7 o'clock hour this morning. I went back and read Bill Doyle's 18-page summary on the election of 2020 because we're going to be forced to talk about was the election stolen because Trump's been indicted. And the center of that story is was the election stolen or not. I've told Rev, I've changed my mind. I said the election was stolen fair and square. Mark Zuckerberg bought the election. I mean, really and truly, when you really, I mean, I went back and looked last night. There's an 18-page summary. Now I'm angry again. Well, I mean, there, there's an 18-page summary. I'll try to explain it in the next hour. But but if we can take the 235 today, put Georgia in the column, gets to 251, I think in the next census, it's going to be a, another plus three or four. You're at about 254, 255. It doesn't take but 270 to win, guys. I mean, we're having this mass migration. Now, once again, if the people from New Jersey, coming from New Jersey to South Carolina, are bringing liberal worldviews, then, then my strategy doesn't apply. But it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to me that the Northerners moving and the Midwesterners moving to South Carolina are making it redder than ever. They're moving because they're tired, not just of the snow and cold weather, but they're also tired of big government, defund the police, radical liberalism. But that seems to be the case. Because there's no, now Charleston would be a little bit different. I mean, it's a little more, ready? Cosmopolitan and eclectic. <laughs> um, skinny jeans and poodles, little small puppies. Anytime you see a man with skinny jeans, small puppies, Trump probably ain't going to do well. <laughs> and that um, it would be the fresh market at Paulie's. I mean, if you poll the people coming in and out of the fresh market at Paulie's, Trump probably doesn't win that. Um, don't even ask the, the guy win the Patagonia. Anyway, that's the story for, for another day. But, but it seems that, I mean, the, the numbers reflect that South Carolina is as red as it's ever been. We've had this this mass influx of people who didn't grow up here. But it seems to me it's the most conservative of those people. They are moving here because of their their weariness of government and, you know, uh, defund uh, some of those things that we talk a lot about here. Well, if 251 turns into 255 in the next census, I mean, it's, it's I mean, so, so what about Michigan and Wisconsin? I mean, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona. The, the, those are the states, and you, and you force the, the, the Democrats to play defense. Could you pick off a, uh, probably not Virginia because of the bureaucrats, you know, the um, the imperialists who work at the empire? I mean, they're, they're, they're probably not going to be inclined to be America firsters, but that that's kind of the, um, I mean, that's the cold hard truth. That's the mathematical. Uh, I can get a bit optimistic. As defeatist as I feel today, when I start thinking about these 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 mass migrations of people from blue states to red states, um, I, I predict Texas will probably pick up another one. There are enough people leaving California. But I read this a few weeks back. If California's exodus of population continues, it will lose another. I mean, remember Gavin Newsom's bragging about California. He's the only governor in its history that presided over the losing of an electoral vote. I mean, that's, that's the skinny. We can talk job creation and taxes and, and budget deficits, 
I mean, the numbers reflect the California. I mean, why would you leave California? I mean, think about it. I mean, it's the um. I mean, it's all the natural beauty, uh, all the great weather. I mean, who would leave California? Well, I mean, Gavin Newsom's running people out of California with some of these crazy liberal agenda issues, and their state house in Sacramento were doing some pretty insane and liberal things, and people are leaving California. So that I mean, I read there's enough people leaving California, just California, to swap one electoral vote, just California. Forget New York, New Jersey, so some of the Midwestern states, just. California, and uh, once again, what should be a, a state that people hope to make enough money one day to live in, and right. people are saying, "Screw this!" Um, you know, can't buy a <laughs> can't buy a gas powered car. I think Newsom said yesterday, one of every four automobiles sold in California were electric, and he hoped by the year after next, one in every three vehicles in California will be electric. Only about three percent of the national market is electric vehicle. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Callers paying a big price, holding on. Let's go there. Be respectful of their time. As respectful as we can be of their time. <laughs> Terry in Lake City, thanks for holding on. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, The, the great American brainwash. I, I'm tired, Ken. I mean, and, and it's just not me. The ones who get up every morning go to work they keep taking more taxes they keep taking 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 more and giving it to those who don't contribute i mean i live in lake city right outside of lake city here it's so frustrating and the brainwash is not on a national level it started and it is big time on this local level not in just lake city but all these other little small towns and I begged, I preached. We got two politicians over here. One lives in a in the country club. One lives in a big farmhouse in the country. You know, both of them are white. We're seventy five percent black here in Lake City. They cater, but yet it's like our voice, the the working person's voice, is not heard. And I spoke with them personally, and they it's a game, and they got it figured out. I don't know what the answer is. But the frustration and just being tired every day, something's got to give at some point. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe y'all can figure it out. Maybe somebody can figure it out. But something's got to be done or not just on a national level, but even the local level. Things are just going to start falling apart. And uh, you guys have a good day and uh, have a good weekend. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate that. I mean, I sense the energy. I mean, I, I, obviously, there's a, a high degree of frustration there. Um the, the the argument I have, not on the show, but the argument that I, the debate I have um, when I'm not doing this with some of my former political colleagues and, and business friends that don't like Trump. I mean, I hear this a lot. Um, man, you, you're pushing Trump and you, you got to be careful with Trump. And, you know, he's, he's, um, he's, he's, a, he's a bombastic, narcissistic blow hard who you can't tell anything i mean i get all I mean, i'm not stupid i mean i've never said i'm a rocket scientist but i'm not dumb i mean i know exactly what trump is but but i want to ask you this to terry's point i mean if trump is a threat i mean let, for argument's sake rev let's say you and i buy into that trump is genuinely a threat because he's so different because he's so disrespectful because he's so what is he threatening i mean what, what is in washington so worthy of preserving. I think Bree said yesterday something interesting. I'm willing to die for my country. I'm not dying for my government. 
I mean, what, what are we protecting Trump from? Is there, I mean, is there, is there, you see where I'm headed? I mean, is there, is there some, some integrity field room somewhere in Washington that all these politicians walk in and get blessed by some Pope of politics and out of that come, you know, a cleaner and more virtuous soul and, and they genuinely do the right thing for the American people. The only reason Trump is relevant is nobody believes people are doing the right thing for the American people. And so, so I understand you don't like narcissism. You don't like a man with no humility. You don't like a guy who puts his name on everything. You don't like a guy who acts the way he acts. You don't like a, you know, a New York blowhard. I get all that. I mean, I understand that. I mean, I struggle with a lot of that. But, but when you say I, we, we got to protect our nation from someone like Trump, what do you believe we preserve worth protecting? That, that's always my point. I mean, what, what am, help me. I mean, it, maybe you can talk me into, you know, opposing Trump like you do. Maybe I need to be a never-Trumper. I mean, is government virtuous? Is government sanctimonious? I mean, you see where I'm headed? We, we got to protect. We, we got to protect our country's government from Trump. Really? I mean, do you think our country's government deserves protecting? Do you think our country's government is is honorable and, and virtuous and, and operates on morality and integrity? Really? I mean, you you believe that Trump is genuinely a threat to a good, honest, and decent government? I don't. And I believe, I mean, one of the primary reasons I'm such a supporter of Trump is I don't believe you can cut around the edges and fix what's wrong with our government. I think you got to blow it up. And I think Trump is kind of part of blowing it up. Now, now I do agree that if we blow it up, if us Trumpsters blow it up, we have some responsibility to put it back together. I mean, I hope we don't blow it up and walk away. But but I'm always amazed by people who say, well, you know, I can't imagine, I mean, it's careless and reckless and dangerous to be a Trump supporter. To me, it's far more careless, reckless, and dangerous to support what's in place today. I mean, are you are you really believing that Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are doing right by the American people? Do you believe Nancy Pelosi and, and for God's sake, the Bushes? I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, one thing I didn't say on the air that I wish I had, J- Jeff was arguing that a president has a responsibility to listen to his advisors, right? Well, I mean, George W. Bush was told that Saddam Hussein had weapons weapons of mass destruction. Now, I think Saddam did have weapons of mass destruction. I think they made their way to Syria. I think he and Assad made a deal. Uh, We know he had them because he killed the Kurds. I mean, he used weapons of mass destruction on his own people, some of the Kurds in uh, in Iraq. But but Rumsfeld said it. Cheney said it. Now, now Colin Powell questioned it. Colin said, oh, man, I'm not sure this is... This uh, evidence is actionable, I think was his word. Um, but he still gave the speech at the UN, the axis of evil, you know, and, and we have confirmed that he indeed has weapons of mass destruction. A president cannot pass the buck to his advisors. He's got to take their opinions. He, he's got to listen to what they have to say about whatever it is they're, they're talking about. But, but Rumsfeld and Cheney were warmongers. They were looking for a reason to advance the empire. They were looking for a reason to blow a place to smithereens. They were looking for a reason to send 18-year-old American kids to a foreign land. That's who they are. That's who John Bolton is. That's who Bill Crystal is. That's what the Weekly Standard and National Review were. I mean, the National Review is trying to hang on and become something a little bit unique and different. But, but I mean, is that what we're protecting Trump I mean, in other words, are those are those institutions so pristine? No, 
They're corrupt to their core. And the only way to deal with the corruption is to just tear it completely apart and hopefully build it with something that does reflect the interest of the American people. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, what's up, guys? Yeah, you're dead right, kid. The mold's inside the cheese. You know, you, you can't you can't carve away the mold from the outside of it. But you know, uh, but I trade these Sean Yankees to come down here that you were talking about on the beach real fast, and they are different. Even the ones that think like we do are different. And you know, you uh, they're probably you know they don't pay a whole lot of taxes, but I tell you what, they do do. They spend money. They spend a lot of money here in the economy. They're always out in the restaurants and everything else. But, you know, we're talking about um, election state. And, you know, back when you ran, kid, it was you against that guy. It wasn't the Democrat Party so much against the Republican Party, but you had to run a campaign. But if you notice, Biden did not even have to run a campaign. In fact, the Democrats have it, have it to the point now to where the person that's running for president really doesn't have to campaign. It's all about the parties. So it'll be the Democrat Party and everything that represents them from the media, the cathedral, running against Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, or whoever gets the nomination. The Republican Party and what other, other, other apparatus we have to combat the cathedral has no game plan. I would love for your Republican guy to come in and say, here is our game plan, and don't make it a bunch of bull crap, you know, just you know, you know, saying, you know, we're going to we're gonna unite this and unite that. No, what is, where, what is the Republican Party and the people that are allied with the Republican Party, what is their game plan, A, B, C, D, E, F, where the rubber hits the road? Not these nuances and that old pie, what is it, putting on a pie in the sky, whatever the hell is going but give me some dang old a, a battle plan to win this country back, and I don't believe the KDSs have one. Now, this don't make me do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just 843-661-0937. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. I'll tell you this. Um, I can't speak as a reporter or White House correspondent, but as a radio show host, it don't get any better than this. I mean, there's always something controversial going on in Washington that listeners are interested in, and we can create content for a show. I'm not saying it's good for the country, but but obviously, John, we live in a very complicated political period, and it got even more complicated with the uh, recent indictment of Donald Trump, he'll be arraigned um, today. Well, what can you tell us about that, John? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm heading to the federal courthouse as we speak for that arraignment. It takes place this afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time. It's going to be similar to what we saw take place up in Manhattan and also down in Florida uh, where the president, the former president, makes an appearance. Uh, he is uh, essentially, when he enters that courtroom building, he is arrested. He's processed, and then he goes through the arraignment process in which he will enter a plea of not guilty. He'll be released on his own recognizance. We likely will not see Donald Trump uh, as he enters into that courtroom and, or courthouse, I should say, uh, because there's an underground garage at the federal uh, district court here in Washington, D.C. John, I'm not an attorney. I, I, I read what attorneys have to say. I don't want to say there's a pro-Trump attorney and an anti-Trump attorney, but there, there are 
there are interpretations of statutes and laws that and that's why we have courtrooms so we can settle some of these these disputes but but from what i've read this seems to be i don't want to say flimsier but but this seems to be a harder to prove case than the one in florida uh, you're you're an attorney you care to give an opinion of that uh, I do have an opinion uh, of that. I've read the 45-page indictment. It's a very strong case as far as two things are concerned, Ken. One, uh, the evidence, uh, text, uh, emails, phone logs, even the contemporaneous notes of the former vice president, who will be a star witness in this trial. Uh, you also have individuals who worked at the highest levels of government, government telling the former president that he lost the 2020 election. So you factor all of that in. And by the way, we don't even know all of the evidence just yet that the government has. They just put enough evidence to get this indictment. The other factor you have to consider is the jurisdiction, the venue of this trial. It is Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. in 2020, its registered voters voted for Joe Biden 95 percent. That is what the jury pool that Donald Trump and his lawyers will be contending with. So this is uh, a perilous case that he faces. I think he recognizes that. Uh, And I do believe that this case will uh, take place before the 2024 presidential election. John, what if Trump believes he won the election? What if he honestly believes the election was stolen? I looked this morning, 36% of Americans believe the election was stolen. 58% believe things happened that have not yet been explained. What if Donald Trump fundamentally believes the election was stolen? Well, what if someone honestly believes that the world is flat and people are telling him? But I mean, do we put flat earthers in prison? (laughs) No, no. But when you try to subvert the peaceful transfer of power, you do put people in prison. And that's what he's facing. So I was just making that analogy just to give you a sense of, you know, people can believe certain things. But if they're told by people in power, the attorney general, the White House counsel, uh, the head of the director of national intelligence, that he's wrong. Uh, there, this, there was no massive fraud in the 2020 election that would have changed the results of the 2020 election in any way. Yesterday, the former vice president referred to uh, the lawyers that were advising uh, Donald Trump at the time as crackpot lawyers. That's the former vice president saying that. He's going to be a very effective witness for the prosecution. So that is what he's contending with. And again, he's dealing with a jury that is not favorable to him, given the makeup of the District of Columbia. So if anyone does not accept the outcome of the election, that's a crime. I mean, is that the precedent now? Because I, I, I mean, I looked last night. No, they're, they're... you're missing my point. You're missing my point. It's not just the belief. It's the actions. That's what he's being prosecuted for. It's his actions. But his he's actions were based on his for... belief that he won the election. He's... I mean, if I believed he's... I won the election, you I can't... would challenge you... electors. I would yeah. well, I would lobby submit, legislators. Uh, Ken, you can't submit a fake ballot, a fake slate of electors. That is illegal under any law in this country. And that's what he's being prosecuted for. He's, that's what he's prosecuting for. It's not for what he said on January 6th before the attack on the Capitol. It's not for the things that he said at campaign rallies. It's for his actions. And so when you see these lawyers for Donald Trump talking about their defense, First Amendment. He's got a First Amendment right. He does have a First Amendment right. It's the problem is when you act on that First Amendment right, 
in support of a fraudulent activity. Another example, another analogy. If you are someone who has these pills and you say these pills can make you fly, there's no crime in that individual saying that. When you sell those pills to individuals, that's when you commit fraud. And that's what people get prosecuted for. That's what Bernie Madoff did. Bernie Madoff didn't say, I have free speech. No, he didn't because you can't use free speech as a substitute for fraudulent activity. So this is a very strong case that the prosecution has built uh, based upon this 45-page indictment. I I, I will tell you this honestly. I give you the straight scoop. I I, I know this stuff. I'm a member of the Supreme Court bar. I'm telling you, this is real perilous times for Donald Trump as it relates to this particular case. That's very interesting. Last question. I know you're on a time schedule, but could could the Trump legal team— make a motion to dismiss. The judge will obviously deny that motion. They appeal the decision, and it ends up at the U.S. Supreme Court. On what grounds do you file the motion for dismiss? Sure, you can file well, I mean, Andy, motion. Andy McCarthy, Jonathan Turley, I mean, these are very distinguished members of the bar, and they say this is I mean, it's lawfare. It's, it's legal theory 101, um, and, and I've read a lot of other legal scholars who um, say similar things so, 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 I mean, it's not as cut and dry. I've read a lot of lawyers who have different opinions than, than your own. I certainly respect your judgment. You know I do. And, and I put a lot of credence in your, and a lot of credibility in your opinion. But, but Andy McCarthy at National Review went through um, kind of Supreme Court precedents of why it's going to be very hard to prove that Donald Trump broke the law when he honestly believed he won the election. Um, well, then, then if that's the case, if, uh, I know Andrew McCarthy. I know Jonathan Turley very well. Personal friend. He actually uh, put the motion forward to have me admitted to the Supreme Court bar. Wow. Good friend. And he's a mentor. I disagree with uh, Professor Turley, and I would tell that to him to his face. As for Mr. McCarthy, uh, he makes a very good point. But these are points that are actually argued in a court. They're not, they're not going to be dismissed outright. They're not... This is not going to be dismissed. This will go to trial. I guarantee it. Interesting. John, thank you for your time. You're always quite an asset for us to hear from, and we really appreciate um, you. Really, We really appreciate you joining us. Th- thanks a lot, Ken. Always appreciate being on your show. Have a great day. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Great television senior national edit- editor, White House correspondent, um, and somewhat of a never term. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be careful. He's in the be beltway. There. I mean, he's, he's there. He's sure in the he is. Beltway. Everybody knows what he's talking and about. He's, he's a, but, but I'm telling you, there are a lot lawyer. of other opinions. And, you know, the motion to dismiss. I mean, I just, you know, I'm talking about could the Trump legal team make a motion to dismiss? I mean, the judge is going to deny, deny that motion. The Trump legal team appeals that decision. I'm not an attorney. I mean, I don't know what grounds you have to have in making a motion to dismiss. I mean, I, I think you've got that right, don't you? I mean, maybe there's a lawyer listening. What, what am I missing here? I mean, there are a couple of lawyers out there to listen to this show. Uh, they don't care much for Trump, but, but I'm asking a legal question. Forget Trump for a second. Could Donald Trump's legal team make a motion to dismiss? That motion is denied. The appellate court, I mean, there, there's an appeals process. Trump appeals that denied motion or the, um, the denial of the motion to dismiss and it eventually gets to what I'm trying to figure out a way is to fast track it to the Supreme Court because I still believe and Jonathan Turley believes and Andy McCarthy believes now obviously John Decker doesn't believe this but I still think this is the fundamental question is whether Donald Trump believes the election was stolen or not 
And if Donald Trump believes the election was stolen, because I didn't have time to go with um, I mean, uh, uh, John had a, another commitment that he had to be um, that he had to be available for. But but I, I used George W. Bush. I mean, George W. Bush is the president. Um, all of his top advisors say Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. We found out later he didn't. Now I believe Saddam at some point in time had weapons of mass destruction because he killed the Kurds. I, you know, and, and I, I just got to believe now I'm, I'm, you know, it ain't protocol is who to call. Forgive me for being such a good old boy. Um, but I would imagine Hussein reached out to Assad and said, Hey, I got these things they're looking for. Can I slip them across the border into, into Syria? Can you and I make a deal, you know, as one terrorist to another? And, and they did. Um, but, but despite the fact that that may have happened, they acted on faulty intelligence. I mean, they, you know, they did not find weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that's a provable fact. We know now that we went to Iraq, we overthrew Saddam Hussein based on a belief that he had weapons of mass destruction. Bush was told by all of his advisors, all of his top aides, all of the, the, um, the global intelligence community, for that matter, were very cons- consistent in their, I mean, there was a consensus. Guy has weapons of mass destruction, got to be dealt with. Now, I've got no idea who cooked the books. Was it intentional? Was an honest mistake? Don't know. Don't have any idea. But ultimately, George Bush gets the blame for being the president when we invaded Iraq on faulty and shaky information. Um, it seems to me that if Trump, it doesn't matter what Trump's top aides and assistants are saying. Trump is not obligated to believe anybody, just like you aren't. I'm not. I mean, I try to talk Rev into something. Rev says, I, I hear you. Sound like you know what you're talking about, but I still believe that, you know, this, or I believe something other than what you're, what you're trying to convince me of, I, I, you know, the, the question I have, because I want to fast track this, can the Trump legal team make a motion to dismiss? The judge denies that motion to dismiss. It goes to the appellate court, and then it goes to the Supreme Court. And, and I guess Trump is, um, I mean, this motion to dismiss would have to be based on some interpretation of the First Amendment. Right? I mean, that, that, that yeah. to me, and I'm not a lawyer. I mean, please understand, uh, I'm a campaign finance expert, more so than I am than, than I am an attorney. But can that, is that conceivable? Is there a possible scenario where that happens? Because, you know, who trusts a, a Washington, D.C.? Let, let's be honest. I mean, the, the one group that didn't vote for Trump any at all, African-American females, right? So you've got an African-American female from the District of Columbia presiding over a trial where Donald Trump is the uh, the potential offender. I mean, who believes Trump gets a fair shake there? I don't. I'm sorry. There's no way in Hades Trump gets a fair shake there. I think he gets a much fairer shake if he can figure out a way to get it to the U.S. Supreme Court and make it about, you know, the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment doesn't just say freedom of speech. It says petition your grievances. I mean, think about that, guys. I mean, mm-hmm. there's another. I'm, I may pull up the First Amendment. Good point. Petition your grievances, right? I mean, is, is Trump not petitioning his grievances? You may not like the way he did it. I mean, it, it may have been un, unceremonial, disrespectful. Um, you know, I mean, imagine Trump doing something like that. I mean, imagine Trump doing something unceremonial and disrespectful. Boy, that's a big surprise, isn't it? But 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 the First Amendment also says you have a right to petition your grievances. I, I just believe, and then once again, I ain't a country lawyer. I'm a country boy, but not a country lawyer. If Trump can figure out a way to get this thing to the U.S. Supreme Court, 
his chances are much better than trusting an African-American female in the District of Columbia to give him a fair shake. Well, my thought is, I think the the point John Decker and even Jeff was making yesterday is it seems like they're appealing to the credibility of the people taking, giving, you know, telling him he lost, which, you know. It that, doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter how right. credible or uncredible they are. Exactly. That, that doesn't mean anything. That, you know, but we're t- that's kind of logical. I don't know what the law says about that. I would think that just because they're credible doesn't mean their word is matter of fact. But my question to John and, and to even Jeff would be, under what circumstances, like if, if Trump, which I believe Trump genuine, genuinely believes the election was stolen, how should he have gone about that to try and investigate or look into it? Is there is it even possible? Well, I think John and Jeff are making a similar argument that Trump owes it to the country to listen to his top advisors. And, and all I'm saying is the last time an American president listened to his top advisors on a big issue, we invaded Iraq. Exactly. Didn't find weapons of mass destruction and a lot of 18-year-olds limping around with holes in the side of their head as a result of. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. I don't want to jump the gun here. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Caller, hang on. We'll give you the floor as soon as we get back. 843-661-0937. We're not jumping around. I mean, this is a subject that I think dominates the show yesterday and today. It's all about, you know, the indictment, the arraignment. Um, I think Trump was president for, oh, I know he was, president four years, three indictments down, one more to go. That'll be an indictment per year. Um, I, I, you know, m- maybe some of these charges are more significant and severe than others. I think the venue is going to be very critically important. I told Reb, Trump put on Truth Social, let's move this thing to unbiased West Virginia. <laughs> I, I bet you couldn't like find that. 12 jurors in West Virginia to commit Trump robbing a bank if he <laughs> drove the car through the front door. Um, there, there's a, there, there's an enormous loyalty that some in the Republican party have toward, um, and I've always equated Trump as somewhat of a tragic hero. I mean, it, it I mean, it, there's some similarities there. The, the, the guy that blows the town up and kind of rides off into the sunset and some of these old, some of these old Western movies, I, I just think there's some, there's some similarities, um, there, you know, you, uh, we haven't really been talking about the Devin Archer testimony from a couple of days ago. So if that is a strategy to indict Trump the day after some breaking news that may incriminate the Bidens, well, mission accomplished so far, even, even we're kind of falling for it here, but it is a big deal. I thought something interesting this morning, I, uh, it was a response to something I asked you yesterday about how you feel, you know, outside of political analysis, um, and punditry, um, how you feel, where your emotions, cause I expressed, I was angry after the announcement of the, um, indictment and and this morning i thought you had an interesting answer well i mean i I feel defeated i mean i'm not angry i mean i've been around this mess a while and i I understand that you know fair comes to the town in october um that there's a lot of other uh if we have satellite radio i could explain it another way but but i'm not angry about it I, i feel like i mean remember limbaugh said that he felt like he had failed miserably because there's still a bunch of liberals out there there's still a bunch of, um, you know, people that have not been convinced that big government and high taxes and redistributionism and, you know, collectivism is bad. I feel that way now because I know in my heart that Donald Trump is being treated fundamentally different. Now, now Trump is different. That, that Trump's going to be treated different because he's a different political animal. He, you know, um, if you start calling the news fake news every chance you get, you got to believe they're going to treat you a little more unfairly. So he's picked some of these fights, but it's frustrating to me 
to, 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 to watch some of these things evolve and, and take place. And, and a lot of people in America just refuse to believe that it's different. I mean, you know, th- this guy's getting exactly what he asked for. Uh, you can't be a renegade and a cowboy. You can run your business like you choose to run your business. But when you become president, there are certain boundaries and guardrails that are in place. I accept that, Reb. But, but I feel like today, uh, you know, I have not been able to articulate a message that resonates with enough people to convince them that Donald Trump is unique and different, but he's being treated disproportionately unfair. I mean, that, that bothers me and upsets me. Our SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, Drew McKissick, is with us. Drew, you care to give an opinion on um, the defeated attitude <laughs> that I bring to the microphone this morning? Well, first off, I want to point out the fact that, you know, your production crew has the best bumper music on any talk radio that I do. So I just want to put that at the front of it. <laughs> we, we take great this. pride in that. We oh, really yeah. and truly they do. They set the tone. They set the tone. <laughs> but look, I, I think here, here's here's one thing uh, to keep in mind. Uh, and we're all human, okay? Uh, and human nature is what it is. Human nature is not going to change. It's never changed. It's, you know, we had Adam and Eve going forward to today. Uh, you're going to have liberals are always going to be with us because we do have failures in human nature, right? Uh, and also, when it comes to even our side of the street, we have to avoid you know spending too much time on how we feel. And I, now I don't want this to, to be like an encounter group here for a minute, though. But but what I mean by that is you know everything in news anymore, and even it's an even you know infected years ago sports media. You know, it's the first question that some cub reporter asks somebody after they won a race or do it. How do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? Everything in life is about how we feel, not about how we think, not about what's logical, what's reasonable, what works, what matters, what's, you know, uh, uh, what's traditional, what's been done in the past and so forth. Yeah, we're too wrapped up in how we feel. And I'm not saying, again, you know, we're all subject to that. I'm not criticizing anybody on, on the basis of, you know, having feelings. It's when we let our feelings guide everything in terms of how we do. And, and as you point out, you know, Limbaugh once said, you know, it felt like he failed because there were still liberals. Well, you know, because these are people who are guided, who their political actions, generally speaking, are guided by their feelings more, much, much more so than folks on the right-hand side of the aisle. Uh, so setting feelings aside, you know, where are, we, where are we now and what's likely to happen going forward? You know, we're in a position right now where it's becoming much, much more obvious to people who are actually paying attention just what you said a minute ago. There are two different standards here that are being applied. Uh, and also, it's kind of coincidental. There are very few coincidences in politics, as you well know, uh, that you have this extra indictment. This next indictment follows the day after or the day of, you know, uh, more uh, evidence, testimony, uh, that underlines the fact that uh, of the the slowly evolving story of Joe Biden and his son Hunter. You know, first off, it's like I don't know anything about Hunter Biden's business, and now, well, he happened to be on twenty phone calls or meetings that uh, Hunter was talking about his business. Well, was he sleeping through all of those? He didn't know anything about what was going on. You know, so their story's evolving now. What do they have to do? They have to divert everybody's attention. You know, what's going to happen over in Atlanta? You've got a DA over there who's probably going to drop a next indictment. You know, this is. The bat signal has gone up for liberals. You know, anybody who's got any means and access to a courtroom with a claim that they could potentially bring against uh, Donald Trump to, you know, hey, throw the, the, the legal works at him, throw the kitchen sink at him. Because from a political strategy standpoint, you know, a, a, and this is not, not too small of a deal here, 
is there are legal expenses involved in all this. So one way where you can try to handicap a political candidate uh, in a campaign is by hurting his pocketbook, obviously. Uh, how do we do that? Well, if we make him have to spend tens of millions of dollars defending uh, himself in court, that helps handicap and hamstring his campaign. Uh, that is certainly a strategy they're looking at here. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, you got the legal charges, too, and they, what they think that does to him in, in the public domain and so forth. I, I hold to the idea that you've got – there's not many more people who can be divided off in one direction or another here. You know, I think the camps are pretty well set. Uh, you know, you've got some people in the middle, but it's a small, small group that's gotten smaller over the years. And the, more, the risk that they run is the more that this truly does look two-sided, you know, two different standards of justice, two different standards of, you know, how things are going to work depending on what your last name is, the more they run the risk of either depressing some folks who might otherwise be on their side or moving some people who are in the middle to think, you know, this does not look fair. And, you know, uh, maybe they don't like everything Donald Trump has ever said, but by gosh, you know, it doesn't look like he's right here that he has been mistreated. They run the risk of that. There's a lot of time to play out yet in this campaign, and obviously we still have primaries to go. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I think they're reflexively trying to defend Biden's flank and letting their emotions carry them to places that might not be strategically beneficial in the long run. Oh, again, other than the finances, you know, the money is a real thing because it does cost money to defend this stuff. Drew, let's uh, – okay, as I said earlier, I'm not angry. Here's what I am angry about, and I need your help. I need counseling. I mean, I, I'll, I'll lay down on the couch, and I'll pay you 40 bucks, whatever, 80 bucks an hour, whatever you need. I am unbelievably angry at people who fed at the trough of the Republican Party for years and years and years and years and decided not to be neutral about this America first and Trump phenomenon, but rather be as antagonistic as any Democrat. I'm talking about the Lincoln Project. I'm talking about Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee is as antagonistic toward Donald Trump, the front runner for mining your party, as Nancy Pelosi is. That makes me furious. That makes me angry to know how how they rode on the coattails and shirt tails of GOP voters and fundraising, mm-hmm. and now they're just, as opposed to the, I don't know, this latest iteration of the Republican Party as any Democrat in America. That makes me angry. Yeah. Those people frustrate me, bother me. I want to punch them in the mouth. Uh, yeah. h- help me with that. Well, I, look, yeah, and you are exactly right. And there is a there is a crew of those type of folks out there. You know that uh, uh, folks that you and I would know would probably uh, use the uh, I'll, I'll clean up the euphemism here. The useless of certain appendages on a board. Let's put it that way. Uh, in terms of getting our party's business done, in terms of actually winning, beating Democrats, driving our conservative agenda. Over the years, you've got people who are grifters and freeloaders. Uh, and who are quick to turn around and show their real colors whenever, you know, things don't suit them the way they would like it to suit them. Or, you know, you've got those other folks who are what I call the uh, the Republicans that the media turns to when they want to hear Republicans say bad things about other Republicans. You know, fill in the blank. You've seen those people on MSNBC and, you know, so forth, and you named at least one of them. There's a, there's a crew of them out there, a few former congressmen who got beat uh, by real conservatives, et cetera. Uh, you know, that's out there. And, you know, again, I go back to human nature. There are freeloaders out there. And they get a bigger microphone just because they are willing to criticize a party. I would, I'd go so far as to say these are people who don't matter. 
and, and, and I mean that in the sense of they never really did anything to help drive and grow the party or the conservative movement, which the party is the vehicle for the conservative movement. And we want to make it a stronger vehicle for the conservative movement. And a lot of those people, quite frankly, never really were conservatives anyway. They were just getting a free ride on the party. Uh, and, you know, like you said, have made money. Some of them have worked as consultants and have, you know, quite frankly, just uh, ripped candidates off, you know, charge them exorbitant amounts of money and lose campaigns. And, you know, the candidate lost, but they've got a new beach house, you know, or whatever, because they got a percentage off the media buyer, whatever it may be. You know, they're nameless and blameless, so to speak, out there. We have some of those who are running Senate campaigns in this past election cycle. And, you know, we try to warn candidates about those folks. And at the end of the day, candidates make their own decisions. You know, we can't make them do certain things. We can certainly guide them and advise them, and we do. Uh, so you've got to measure that. Those people are out there. And, and look, I, I would even say there are folks like that on the Democrat side of the aisle, too, quite frankly, who are just using the Democrat Party, who are freeloaders and make money over there that don't necessarily believe in the cause, but they're there to make money. Those folks are, you know, they're everywhere in the world, people who, you know, who, who that's what they're about. Uh, but it gets a bigger microphone. It gets more attention when it serves the liberals and the media's ends. Uh, well, hey, look, here's a Republican who's criticizing what Republicans are doing. And, you know, fill in the segment, fill in the blank. You know, it's a 24-hour news cycle. It demands content. Uh, and they're out there, and, and they deserve, you know, every bit of uh, shame that can get heat on them because, you know, they were never really about the cause to begin with. Last question. I don't have an official responsibility. You do. I'm a radio show host. I'm an opinion monster. My guardrails are way out yonder somewhere. Um, yours have to be a little more precise and clean. Um, how do you, as an official of the, of the state and national party, how do you defend the front runner by what we perceive to be unfair attacks, but, but treat the other candidates fairly, the DeSantis's and Ramaswamy's and Pence's and, and Haley's and Scott's of the world. I mean, you, you can't, I mean, your job is not to, you know, to pick a, a nominee, but rather promote yeah. the party. You've got this front runner that we believe is being unfairly attacked, but you got all these other candidates that deserve serious consideration. They do. And, and look, we've got a, uh, we've got a process for that. It's called a primary. You know, we run the biggest and uh, uh, probably the one that will get the most attention here in South Carolina. It will be on February the 24th. Uh, you know, I, it's not my job to defend candidates uh, in a primary setting. Uh, but part of my job is pointing out, as we just did, hypocrisy, where it is, absolutely. And, you know, that, that is certainly affecting Donald Trump right now. But, hey, you and I both know if anybody else becomes a nominee of the Republican Party, what's going to happen? They're going to get the exact same treatment. And you know that, and you've seen that over the years. Uh, so that whole machine is going to turn around and going to work against them. The one that will pet them today is going to turn around and bite them next week as soon as it's done with them and gets what it, gets what it wants out of them. So pointing that out, you know, regardless of who the candidate is, is part of what we need to do, in my opinion. Very well explained. Drew, thank you for your time, man. You're always a good guest. I, I'm, I'm going to hold you sure. to it. We exchanged some emails this week, uh, your office and our office, but we're, we're going to try to get you in That's here right. live and in living color and do a, a full-fledged podcast so we can really break break some of these things down and you take us behind the scenes as, as to how these primaries and candidates Absolutely. perform. Thank you, man. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Thank you very much. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, um, kind of offering a, um, you know, a party's perspective, a party mm -hmm. official's perspective um i am just i mean you asked about being i'm, I'm not angry about much of anything i am angry 
at those grifters. I mean, and his I, response to me was interesting. I mean, because he was critical of those people. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the corrupt consulting class. They don't believe in anything except getting paid. Yeah. I mean, they, they're political prostitutes. I mean, they, they, they just prostitute themselves out to whoever's got the money. But, but the party let that go on too long. I mean, not, not Drew specifically, but the party, the, the party hierarchy allowed people who didn't fundamentally believe in, in values and, and held views that we hold, they let those people reap enormous financial benefit from, you know, just appearing to believe something they fundamentally did not believe in. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Linda in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Linda. Yes, good morning. Thank y'all for that beautiful commentary. It kept me walking, so I got to hear the show this morning. But I always want to bring the light side to a serious conversation. I was upset when you said African-Americans, women. And I had to give it a little thought. I don't even consider myself an African-American because I'm black. I live in the United States all my life. I'm a black woman. And I didn't know who Trump was when he came on the scene. I had to be educated to that. But he is what we march for. He is that person that we want to be. And I cannot understand when I'm talking to other black folks why you think he's Satan. Because he's not. He is what we march for in all these marches. He's what we have banged on doors. And if anybody's guilty of anything, Maxine Water is. Because when Trump first became president, what did she say? Go out and harass his people. And that's what people did. They went out and accosted people who had nothing to do with anything other than the fact they supported Trump. So if we're going to apply that he's done something wrong, it should be applied to Congress all the way around. And I always tell people what they do to Trump, you be assured that in the future, the laws that they violate to get Trump will be used against you. But y'all have a wonderful day, and thank you for allowing me to do my two-mile walk in peace and enjoyment. <laughs> thank you, Linda. We appreciate you a lot. Thank you. And I want to be, I want to read, I, I, there is no way I would insult, you know, white females, black females, white males, black males. But when you've run for office, there is a statistical reality. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, math is math. Rev, Rev has heard me say this a hundred times. I mean, politics is about moving the meter. It's about, you know, uh, ideas and, and beliefs and relatability and likability. I mean, all these things come into play. I mean, no, no question about it. Drew has said before, thank God for people who are willing to run for office. I really thank God for people who are willing to run for office and good at it. But, but you, you've got to, I mean, there, there's a statistical reality. And the reality is Donald Trump got beat in Washington, D.C., 95% to 5% or somewhere thereabout, at least 90-10. And the, the one group of people who oppose Donald Trump more than any group is African-American females. So when you kind of have the double whammy of an African-American female judge in Washington, D.C., the likelihood of Trump getting a fair shake seems slim to none, and slim just left down. 843-661-0937. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. You've heard my perspective. I think we've done a decent job of offering a lot of different perspectives this morning. We had SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, Drew McKissick. We've had a um, senior national editor and White House correspondent from Great Television. We've got political analyst David Grasso with us. David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Things are hopping in D.C. today, awaiting President Trump's arrival. Yeah, when I when I ran for office, if bad news came to one of my opponent's door, it was good news for me. I'm not sure 
That's the case in today's iteration of the grand old party. In fact, when Donald Trump got indicted, um, several of his, I guess, opponents came running to his defense. What, what do we make of this situation uh, the Republican Party finds itself in? Well, it's a very difficult situation. I mean, consider that Mike Pence was mentioned in the latest indictment over 100 times, and he was directly involved in the events that got President Trump indicted. So he's especially in a difficult situation. Of course, you have the crowd of never-Trumpers like Chris Christie, Will Hurd, and others. But then you have people like Ron DeSantis, who is obviously Trump's political rival, but he also doesn't want to you know, telegraph any sort of message that indicates that he's a, he approved of these actions by the Justice Department. David, is it fair to say that, that a problem with the, with the party, I mean, I ran as a Republican in South Carolina. I saw this coming back in 2010. I sensed that there was a degree of populism. Uh, I've argued that populism is not a coherent governing philosophy, but it's a hell of an emotional energy, and it will disrupt whatever you consider uh, to be normal. But, but is, is that what the party is trying to deal with now, how to harness the energy that Trump brings to the dance? I mean, it's, 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 I don't want to say it's out of control, but it's not, I mean, it's not precise. It, it doesn't operate with precision. It, you're, you're a political strategist or analyst. I mean, what, what, do you, what sort of advice would you give to those trying to harness the energy surrounding President Trump and make it productive and sustainable in one of our uh, political parties? I think you make a really good point, because back when you were running in 2010, there were a lot of legitimate concerns through the Tea Party about government spending that still remain today. Unfortunately, with the rise of populism, both on the left and the right, we tend to skirt around the issues that matter the most, the kitchen table issues, as we call them. So if I were giving uh, advice to someone like Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Chris Christie, I would tell them to stick to the issues. You know, Donald Trump is a very entertaining character. I've met him. And, you know, he's someone who, you know, takes all the energy out of the room. But there is a lot of Trump fatigue in the country. There are a lot of people who like the Trump agenda, you know, low taxes, small government, et cetera, et cetera. But they're a little tired of Trumpian style politics. And unfortunately, I think Ron DeSantis is, you know, kind of a Trump light that really doesn't appeal to a lot of people who are tired of living in a game show, but you really just want good old-fashioned Republican conservative politics on the agenda. What does America first mean to you? You, you would be considered an insider. What, what, when someone says America first, what, what do you hear? What, what is your response to that? I think it's a, it's a, it's, you know, to me, America first historically reminds me of, you know, non-interference in World War II, Charles Lindbergh style. Today, America first is a larger blanket statement that just talks about, you know, nationalist style politics that includes economic policies that benefit regular Americans, including the middle class. You know, it's a, a term that's not really well defined and it's a populist term. And I agree with you. You know, I'm a free trader um, for small government. I believe free trade is an economic right, just like human rights are. And, you know, this kind of puts me outside of the mainstream these days because both the left and the right have embraced economic nationalism and populism. Well explained. David, thank you for your time. Thank you. And, and see, Rev, here's what I think is happening, guys. Uh, I mean, I'm having kind of a, uh, a busy head syndrome moment. There has been a certain conditioning and training for political operatives for, you know, there's been a blueprint, a roadmap. Um, you, you go to a university, get a poli science degree, 
your page at the state house. You you um you you become an activist in the Republican or Democrat Party. Um, there, there's kind of an A and a B and a C and a D. Check of the box. We talked a lot about check of the box candidates. Uh, well, I mean, there's check of the box consultants, check of the box strategists, check of the box pollsters, and all of a sudden something comes along that obliterates everything you've been trained and conditioned to believe is the way you win elections. And it probably takes a half generation to wean yourself off of the former model, accepting that this is, I mean, if, if you have invested enormous resources in education and activism and even running for office, believing that the way to win a Republican primary is to talk about lower taxes and less government. And all of a sudden you start talking about it and nobody gives a rat's ass what you're talking about, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden you start talking about the American way, trade, immigration, China, and people, I mean, you get rousing responses, ovations galore. You become the rock star in the room. You've been trained and conditioned, hey, don't, 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 don't budge on, on limited government. Don't budge on lower taxes. And, and all of a sudden you talk about limited government, lower taxes, look at the crowd and you're yawning. You start talking about China and immigration, and NAFTA, and everybody sits on the edge of their seat. Well, I mean, some people are quick studies, and some are not. And some refuse to believe that the model has changed. And I think that's what a lot of people are having trouble with today. Um, I don't know what Asa Hutchinson is up to. Uh, Mike Pence would be a better example. I mean, I think you and I agree, Rev, that Mike Pence is an honorable man. Sure. He's a decent soul. But he's a product of what? the Republican Party of days gone by. And, and I'm thinking about Pence laying in the bed as Trump's vice president, um, you know, just wondering, what have I gotten into? I mean, everything that I believed, you know, God, guns, and glory. I mean, that's just, I mean, it still matters. I mean, there's still a belief that, I mean, it, you know, religious people vote Republican more than they vote Democrat. Uh, we defend the Second Amendment. So there's still some, uh, in the Venn diagram, there's still some overlap. But, but the new and most powerful energy is about, you know, China taking our jobs. Uh, you know, we, we have lax immigration enforcement. and had an influx of unskilled labor, drives the cost of, you know, I mean, we've over, what, what do I like to say? We've overvalued capital, undervalued labor in this economy, and, and we got to get it back in in some sort of order. You know, I, I told a friend of mine yesterday, he listens to the show, real smart friend of mine. He says, look, I, I get that you're talking about an empire, and I don't deny that, that you're, you're on to something when you say that maybe we've got an empire. But, but could it be that we have historically tried to find balance in the empire and the republic's relationship? In, in other words, I might give you, he doesn't buy that we're, we're, we're an empire. What he buys is that we are a, a republic that has allowed imperialism for the last 20 years to run 50 miles an hour while Republicanism is running 20 miles an hour and one gets so far ahead of the other. It becomes such a, a more critical part of our government than, than the former. That's an interesting point. I mean, how do you balance? I mean, if America got to put the world back together post-Second World War and, and we want to adhere to these values of Republicanism, Rev and I send someone to Congress, uh, Josh sends someone uh, to the state house. I mean, you know, it's it's a um, Josh doesn't vote on every issue. Rev and I don't vote on any, every issue, but our representatives do. So you've got this. This it's almost like a uh, you know a, um, a, a, a a dual mission. We, we we've got this responsibility to the world, but we've got this responsibility to the voter, 
And as long as we're kind of um, obligated to our responsibility to the world at the same pace or same rate we're honoring our obligation and responsibility to people, but but he agreed with me. Yeah, but I, I, I don't. I, I mean, he says I don't deny what you're saying that that maybe imperialism has outpaced republicanism, and we probably need to get that back in some sort of um in some sort of balance. Maybe that's a better way to explain it. I mean, I, I'm I'm quick to say you know let, let's go 100 miles an hour this way, and, and he's always one of these friends who says, look, I, I get you. I mean, I, I think you're onto something. I think you're kind of in you're barking up the right tree, but but let's 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 agree that. When we say the American Empire, we're not saying you know American Empire all bad. And I've been very careful about the the linear graph and the you know um, relative good and the American. But but I do believe that that the political leadership in America, both Republican and Democrat, have been more committed to preserving the empire than they have affording the American people the opportunities they deserve. That's kind of an I mean I, you know I don't know if that's the exact way. To say it, but you've got empire and you've got republic, and empire has gotten overweighted to a point that people are beginning to sense it and see it and believe it, and they want a correction. I mean, I, I, I'm not a, I'm not an isolationist. I mean, I would probably in today's political script be called a non-interventionist. I mean, I probably would. I mean, I accept we have some role in in world affairs. I accept that you know NATO's probably to Rev's point uh, been an effective deterrent. Um, but but I, I just I just think we've allowed that the American Empire to become our priority at the expense of the American Republic, which is to do what? I mean, it's obligated to whom? The people of the world? No, the people of the good old U.S. of A. It's supposed to be. Yeah, let, let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Ken, I think you were on fire this morning. You really preached a good sermon there. And I, um, and we, only thing is we need evangelists to go out there and somehow get through to these knuckleheads that we're in a dangerous situation. Now, right now, I think you're dwelling on an academic argument, whether we're a republic or an empire. Well, we're a little bit of both and a lot of, of, lot of the other and not so much of uh, the republic anymore. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to keep it. Uh, Benjamin Franklin warned us that, uh, you know, it's yours. Can you keep it? And I think we're facing an ex- existential threat, well, multiple threats from the outside and the inside against the republic right now. And it's a very dangerous time for uh, any sort of politically aware human being to be a, uh, alive in America because there there's just some wild concepts it's one thing to come and take your job then take your factory and then take your farmland but to take your whole culture away that's a problem thank you mike appreciate that 843-661-0937 you guys are real good contributors and i mean that i mean we bounce things off one another that is kind of an academic argument i mean there's no doubt about it uh rest kind of looking at me like oh god i kind of see some of that i mean Mm -hmm. rest a bright guy um and not not as politically inclined as i am but he's a bright guy um, but when I say these things, I see Rev going, oh, okay, we, we've got this, we've got this balancing act that, that we're trying to, you know, keep in balance. And in one hand, you've got a Republic and a Republic is, uh, we, we thought committed to its people and the, the empire. Um, and I'm not talking about, see, I don't, I don't believe you have to be a territorial expansionist to be an empire. 
I mean, I don't think you've got to go, you know, invade a country to be an empire. I just don't buy that. I think we've affected change around the world in the name of the American way without. I mean, I, I, mean, I think, you know, we're, we're the largest arms dealer in the world. I mean, when we send, you know, our, our, our next to latest greatest is light years better than these other countries' latest and greatest. So we're kind of the, um, I mean, when we, that, that's, 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 isn't that kind of expansionism? I mean, when we uh, allow some of these countries, some of these allied countries, the right to purchase our weaponry, isn't that sort of an expansionist? I mean, I understand it's not territorial, but, but aren't, aren't we, aren't we cashing in? I mean, is that diplomatic yeah. well, or is that advancing? and we pick and choose who gets what? Well, I mean, okay, let me ask you this. Is that diplomacy or advancing of an empire? Mm. <laughs> you know what it yeah. is. I mean, it ain't diplomacy. Yeah. It's advancing an empire. I mean, it's that's but, that's but our what, foreign. But what confuses me is the forces that are promoting, you know, us getting away from a republic. You know, where is the mindset? And if you ask these people, is it, do you have a problem with the republic? Do you not like the way our country was set up and founded? Why are you working so hard against that? Because the republic doesn't take six point five trillion dollars to keep in business. Oh. So the answer is? Well, I mean, the answer is money. Now, what's the question? I mean, we keep going back to that. I mean, the yeah. answer is money. You're right. Now, what is the question? And and I said yesterday, it's it's pretty apparent to keep the empire flourishing, we need about $6.5 trillion. What would a republic cost the taxpayer? We're, we're afraid to know because somebody gets a haircut. And those people who take the biggest haircut have the biggest corner offices. Take a break. Back in a few. We went, what, roughly 247 years without an American president indicted? Now we're having an indictment about every time Taylor Swift has a hit record. So it's, um, <laughs> I, think, I think it's his third indictment with another pending, probably in, uh, in Florida. Former President Trump uh, will appear for arraignment in a D.C. courtroom this afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good morning. And I'm outside the federal courthouse here in D.C. where that arraignment will happen at four o'clock here Eastern time uh, for what should be. I mean, I hate to use the word, but what is kind of a routine uh, appearance, <laughs> right? It's the initial appearance for somebody who is uh, indicted, charged with a crime. Uh, we expect that the president, former president, will be uh, arraigned, uh, enter a not guilty plea on these four counts now that were uh, handed up by a grand jury earlier this week as part of the investigation by special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, these four charges are conspiracy. Three of them are conspiracy charges tied to attempts to uh, overturn the election results of 2020 and impede uh, an official uh, proceeding as it relates to Congress's uh, ability to certify the electoral count uh, back in uh, January of 2021. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it, it makes the former president now the uh, highest profile uh, defendant uh, tied uh, to this January 6th investigation. Jared, will we learn anything today? I mean, will there be a timeline yeah. of when the trial is to be held? Uh, will there be a request for change of venue? I mean, logistically, what 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 could happen today? Yeah, those are good questions. This is actually a hearing in front of a magistrate judge, so it's not even in front of the judge who will be overseeing uh, the trial itself, which is why I think a lot of those things that you're talking about as they relate to changes of venue or trying to find trial dates probably are going to be scheduled uh, for some time later. Perhaps you get an order uh, kind of giving deadlines for both sides to present briefs, maybe give their, um, uh, you know, recommendation for when the trial 
uh, could begin. We've seen this kind of play out uh, to a certain extent down in uh, Florida, where the president is facing the, the charges related to the uh, handling of documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in that case, you'll recall you had the prosecution, the, 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 Fed, the, the Justice Department asked for a trial uh, later this year, as early as December. You had uh, Trump's legal team say that they wanted it after uh, the 2024 election, and the trial was sort of found in the middle ground, the judge ordering a start in May. Uh, I would imagine a similar kind of uh, back and forth takes place at some point here, right, where the prosecution will say, we're ready to go on this date. The defense has said that they want a lot of time to prepare for this. They have indicated that they may ask for a change of venue as well. Those will have to be decisions made by the judge and, and decisions that probably uh, won't come in, in the next couple of days, but probably more likely the next few weeks. Jared, this is probably an unfair but interesting question. We're, we're not in the beltway. You are. I mean, we're out here in flower country. Uh, we speculate on what happens inside the belly of the beast, um, so to speak. But but for, for 240-some-odd years, this never happened, and now it's happening again. Is, is there I mean, is there a sensibility about D.C. now that, that feels a little bit different? Now, that's kind of a weird way to ask, but, but, but you know, I mean, th- there's always been a way we do things. Trump shows up and uh, c- kind of obliterates political normalcy along with that or, or responses. I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, I'd, I'd, I love, yeah. I'd love to know what the sensibility of D.C. is regarding doing something that we've never done before. Well, by and large, um, you know, the, the city has kind of grown accustomed to these types of, of events, right? Like, as I said, I'm outside the courthouse right now, which is on, uh, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue, the corner of Pennsylvania and Constitution. It's a pretty busy intersection right on the uh, – uh, the foot there of uh, the U.S. Capitol complex, and people are coming and going on their way to work. Uh, and you see people walking into the courtroom for the, the type, courthouse for the type of uh, business that they have uh, routinely. But I think as it relates to kind of this uh, understanding of uh, why, uh, you know, the, the Trump kind of era felt different, I think in large measure is because uh, Donald Trump wanted it to, right? I mean, he went about things in a way that weren't always done by, by predecessors. And I think that was part of his appeal and one of the reasons he got elected. Um, certainly you have seen, um, you know, the Justice Department and, and Democrats uh, kind of want to look at some of these behaviors and, and wonder if lines were crossed. These are very different uh, cases, right? I mean, the case as it relates to what we're here for today is related to activity that happened before uh, he left office. The uh, charges down in Florida relate to, to crimes committed uh, or alleged to have been committed after uh, he left office. So um, even his uh, sort of leaving uh, office didn't change, uh, I think, the um, the types of investigations that, that were being handled here, um, both by the Justice Department and by uh, Congress as well. Well explained as usual. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great sure. day, sir. Uh, just kind of one of these insiders' perspective, and I think it's interesting that we can give you that. I mean, we have this outsider perspective. Uh, we're not in the Beltway. We're, we're not I mean, we think we have uh, somewhat of an understanding on how that city functions and operates. It's very insiderism. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Devin Archer sat down with Tucker Carlson, and and Tucker kind of I mean expressed, "Hey, I lived in Washington for thirty years. I mean, the only business that Washington um, has, I mean, it's not it's not the financial sector of uh, Wall Street. It's not the agrarian economy of the Midwest. It's not the manufacturing." of the South. It's not, I mean, you know, I mean, economies evolve, they change, they transition from one to another. The only business in Washington is influence. 
I mean, it really and truly is. I mean, you're not making widgets. I mean, I understand you got restaurants and shopping malls to service the people that 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 live there. But in essence, some of the business of Washington is influence. Who has it? Who needs it? Who can help you get it? And, and you know, Tucker was talking about living in the Georgetown, D.C. area for 30 years. It, it, there, there's not a widget plan on every corner. That There's there's not a, um, a law firm doing criminal litigation in every corner. The majority of law firms on K Street are doing what? Trying to gain influence. I mean, somebody comes to, Dave sure. Baker comes to, uh, a law firm on K Street and says, hey, you know, I need to make sure these, no, he doesn't go there and say the widgets are, are not as good as the widgets in, in California. I mean, it's the, it's the epicenter of political influence. And when you go there, you're, you're seeking political influence. I mean, unless you're visiting the Smithsonian, you know, or, or walking by the Jefferson Memorial, I understand uh, the tourist sightseeing element of that. But the business of Washington, it's all about influence. And, you know, Devin Archer and Tucker Carlson were sitting down and, you know, some of the, uh, I, I mean, Devin Archer was a bit coy and, and uh, it, I don't want to say misleading, but he was very sarcastic in the way he um, explained things to Tucker. I don't know if you saw that or not, but no. he sat down with, um, with Tucker for 15 or 18 minutes and he, and he basically said, you know, I'm not going to say what we were doing. But it's pretty obvious what we were doing. I mean, I'm not going. I'm not just full throttled. Say, you know, we were there trying to gain influence over. And it was in the, um, I think, the private uh, hedge funds, private what, what, uh, venture capital, uh, uh, private capital, that sort of. Um, well, I mean, there, there's no business in Washington. I mean, it's not like you're investing in an asphalt plant. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not investing in a, in a farm. I mean, you're, you're there seeking influence. And who has the opportunity to provide the most influence is who gets paid the most money. I mean, there's there certain reputations there. So, um, so anybody making substantial money in Washington are not making it running a better farm, running a better manufacturing plant, you know, doing a better job at, um, at, at serving food. I mean, it's all about, you know, who has the influence, who needs the influence, and who gets paid to connect those those two people together, and Devin Archer and Hunter Biden obviously had Rosemont Seneca, which was this company they created, and um, and Joe Biden was there. I mean, he was their North Star. He was their provider of the high level of influence. I mean, it doesn't get much higher than the vice president. I mean, it gets one place higher than that. That would be uh, the presidency. But um, but but if you're you know second man in charge, so to speak, if you're one heartbeat away from the presidency, you can provide enormous value, especially when you have been as entrenched as Joe Biden has been in, in Washington. And, um, I mean, that, that we'll get back to that story. And, and the only reason I am giving a full throttled defense and explanation of Trump is nobody else is going to do it. I mean, it's going to be Fox news somewhat and conservative talk radio. I mean, that's it. I mean, there's nobody else going to tell you the other side of the story. I mean, with all due respect to John Decker, I mean, Decker made his mind up. I mean, he sounded like a prosecutor. I mean, it didn't sound like a White House correspondent. He sounded like a prosecutor. Uh, and, and he got a little bit edgy with me when I pushed back on some of these things that Turley and, and Andy McCarthy have said. And, and I still think a central issue is, does Donald Trump believe he won the election? If Trump wins the, wins the election, or if he thinks he won the election, he has the right to uh, redress his grievances and to express himself. And, I mean, if you think you won the election... 
and, and there's some, you know, um, some abstractness or inexactness in a law, you, you try to take advantage of it. But I mean, that's kind of redressing your grievances with your government. And I just believe his best strategy. I'm not a lawyer. Be careful when, when I try to pretend or play one on the radio. But I still believe that the, the, the most solid foundation Trump has is to argue that I believe the election was stolen. I can easily say that. I mean, I have every right to say that. And the reason I was leaning on legislators, leaning on electors, you know, trying to interpret the law a certain way is because I was redressing my grievances to my government. I think, I mean, once again, I'm not a lawyer, and I wish a lawyer would call in to help me understand, but, but if I were Trump's lawyer, legal team, I would try to figure out a way to get the court to dismiss this case. They're, they're going to deny that, but there's no way that judge in, in D.C. is going to allow the dismissing of the case. And I don't know what grounds you can dismiss. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you have to have happen to ask a court to dismiss a case, but I would try to get real creative, and I would, I would ask the judge to dismiss the case. And I guess what I'm asking, Rev, or what I'm saying is, or implying, based on you know my interpretation of the First Amendment, based on my belief that the election was stolen, based on my right to redress you know my grievance with my government, I'm asking the court to dismiss the case on those grounds. The judge says, hell no, we're not doing that. Um, and then, then the appellate court comes in in some way, shape, or form, and it eventually gets to the Supreme Court. Um, the, the better idea I've had for Trump is... I would probably figure out a way. Remember Drew McKissick said that this cost a lot of money? I mean, the money you could spend on running a campaign, you're having to spend to defend yourself in a court of law. I mean, it's going to be tens of millions of dollars to work this through the process. I mean, just this one. I mean, imagine there are two others and a fourth on its way in the state of Georgia. I have no idea how much money will be spent um, in defending Donald Trump or prosecuting, but that's taxpayer dollars. I mean, they don't care. They could, um, I don't know how much money Trump's got. He ain't got as much as the government. I'll assure you of that. But I've got this crazy idea that Trump needs to go see Elon Musk. Because Musk is one of these free speech absolutists. And if Trump can convince Musk that this is an issue of free speech, what is 50 or $100 million to Elon Musk? I mean, if the, I mean it depends on what Tesla and SpaceX stock is. Uh, and now Twitter stopped. But what you, in all honesty, well, Twitter's a private company. What is, you know, $100 million? And, and I get that Musk probably doesn't care much for Trump's personality or his, his bombast, his narcissism. But if this is a, if you can convince Musk that this is a case about free speech and an infringement upon uh, that right to free speech and redressing your grievances with your government, Musk writes a check for $100 million and you've got the legal bills paid for, taken care of. Um, I mean, that doesn't endear Musk to the American way. I mean, it, as much as we love the Second Amendment, I mean, conservative Republicans get, get very, very, very compassionate about the Second or, or passionate about um, the Second Amendment. Don't they feel equally as passionate about a right to say what you believe to be true, express yourself? Um, I mean, we're politicizing. We're politicizing, not politicizing, we're criminalizing you know, uh, what, what they would perceive as misinformation, um, who gets to decide. Remember the Biden administration, what are the misinformation czar? Someone to basically say, you know, here's what gets to, to, to here's what we allow to have a debate about, and here's some things we don't allow uh, a, a debate to take place. I just think that's, and once again, 
I'm a high school, excuse me, a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Take what I say uh, for what it's worth, but that would be my angle. Uh, I think he has a chance in Miami, Rev, because I think there's some Colombian-American um, that probably had family, or Cuban-American, Cuban-American that probably had family flee uh, from Castro's, you know, um, dominance of the way they live their lives, and they'll perceive the government as overreaching uh, during some of that trial. But to believe that Trump's going to get a fair shake in a city he lost 95-5 to five with an African-American female. I mean, when you think about it, and I'm not, I'm not trying to insult uh, one race a person or, or one, um, one uh, sex. I, I'm not. I mean, I, I would never do that. Um, but, but the reality is, D.C., the, the, the person least likely to be sympathetic to Trump is an African-American from Washington, D.C. Can we agree to that? I mean, the statistics clearly show that. Trump does not get many African-American female votes. He didn't get many votes from D.C., so he drew a, an African-American female judge from Washington, D.C. That's about as bad a draw as you can get. I mean, that would be like the Braves and the Dodgers play in a playoff series and every game played in, in Dodger Stadium, and they, you know, uh, uh, have three consecutive rainouts to let the Dodger starting pitcher pitch uh, every single game. The odds are just going to be fundamentally stacked against against Trump, but we shall see um, how that plays itself out. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville, good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. The thing that worries me most about this is they have criminalized the political process. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> the, the Democrats have challenged every Republican in the last, well, since 2000, even going back to Reagan, they they have objected to the the electors. They've sent alternate, you know, they call them fake electors now, but they sent alternate electors to the Congress, and the Congress has to figure that out. And up until now, the the vice president has just been a ceremonial role because nobody know actually knows what his uh, duties are because they're very ambiguous. In fact, they were so ambiguous that they had to change the law in 2022 to spell out that the, 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 the vice president, all he does is count the electors and, and approve them. That's it. He, he can't change them. He can't reject them. That's up to Congress. And they've been fighting about this ever since Bush and, and Gore until the Supreme Court came in and stopped the Supreme Court of Florida from changing the rules every three days. So they've been doing this, but all of a sudden they've weaponized everything. And they're starting to catch them in the butt because up until Manafort and, and Flynn, the, the foreign representation, FINRA, whatever it is, that wasn't a crime. That was, okay, slap on the hand, register, and and you're good to go. But, you know, since the incoming national security guy talked to a ambassador, now it's a crime because they want to go after Trump. So they're weaponizing everything. They're criminalizing everything because, you know, Stacey Abrams still says she won Georgia I just I loved your program. I, I got one suggestion for you. Good people like you 
tout your horn. Great people, let us tout your horn. You have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Let's do this. I told you there's nothing to be optimistic. Well, I mean, I told you I felt defeated. I can't speak for every for everybody. I'm not angry. I mean, I do get angry at some of the folks who fed at the trough of Republican politics. They never believed in anything. I mean, they, they were grifters. I mean, they, they were uh, just self-advantaging themselves, trying to get as much money as they could. And I'm talking about John Kasich. I'm talking about Michael Steele. I'm talking about all those consultants of the Lincoln Project. I mean, the list goes on. You know the you know who they are. May not know them by name, but you know those when you when you see or hear from them. But but it would be it would be encouraging me to know that the Republicans aren't the only ones at odds with one another. I found a um I found a bit on on Twitter. It's it's kind of a state issue. Dick Harputley and and Todd Rutherford. One's a House member, the other a senator. They're influential, especially in this judicial merit screening committee. So 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 let's let's um let's kick back and enjoy. After the break, Josh <laughs> will get in queue. Let's kick back and enjoy. Two Democrats, not two Republicans arguing with one another, but two Democrats going at it with one another, state government, how we pick judges, how we appoint magistrates. And, we, we, you know, we've had a very entailed conversation about that. So, um, yeah, to make me feel, this is a bit self-serving, but to make me feel better about um, about my party and some of its transgressions and misgivings, let's listen to two state of South Carolina Democrats go at it about um, how <laughs> we pick judges, the Judicial Merit Screening Committee. Take a break. Back in just a few. So if I could, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could. There is a report issued by JMSC after every screening. It is given to every legislator. It is given to the public. And it would have told you back in 2021 that Judge Strickland had been found qualified. You were a member of the delegation in 2021. Your failure to read does not make for a failing of JMSC nor myself. The your, failure, no, sir, the no, sir. The you failure, had your time. Again, you were out of order. You were out of order. Oh, you received a oh report. God. He's I am still talking. He's I am still talking. I'm still talking. You received a report from JMSC. It was put on your desk. And the fact that you were too ignorant to read it and now want to lie to the public as if you weren't notified is your own fault. You, as a member of the General Assembly, got notice of who was screened out. You, as a member of this delegation, received notice that it is your obligation to, at that point, vote on whether we're going to fill that position. You, as Senator Harpoolian, Failed to do so. Because that the chairman had the responsibility of calling no, the meeting. No, and he didn't call it because uh, he was sorry, not to call it. I'm sorry, sir. You're the puppet master, master and he's a puppet master. What was that? Listen, he's the puppet master and you're the puppet master. Yes, sir. We're going to move forward. So, so, yeah, so, you know. Uh, Democrats have some of their own problems there. You know, there's an extended version of that. I'm trying to find it where where Dick, excuse me, Senator Harpootian really goes after um, Todd, and um, I can't find it. There, there's kind of a three-minute, maybe a four-minute version of that. I'll try to find it, uh, but it got a little bit contested uh, there. But but um, when Todd responded, when Representative Rutherford responded to Senator Harpootian, I mean, Harpootian had basically accused him of, um, I mean, this is why the public doesn't trust the way we pick judges. I mean, this is why the public just has no faith at all in the way the General Assembly does its business. 
because it's done in the middle of night. Now, you know, once again, uh, I can't find this. There, there's an extended version out there floating around somewhere about four minutes long that has a um, <laughs> it has um, Senator Hart Pootley and uh, much more uh, animated than, um, well, you can't get much more than they were a second ago. I'll tell you this. Um, I don't see the world the way Dick does. I mean, I don't. But to call him ignorant, ah, Senator Harpootley may be one of the brightest people in South Carolina politics. I think he's misguided. I think he's wrong. Uh, you know, I don't agree with very much of what he stands for or believes in. But but I think you, I mean, to believe he's ignorant and dumb, <laughs> you, you, at, at your own risk. Do that at your own risk. Now, now, now Todd's very capable. You know, this is really and truly, I mean, it would be two of the brighter lawyers in the state of South Carolina. There's a little, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, um, well, I mean, there's a lot at stake here. Uh, you know, Harpootlian's a lawyer. Rutherford's a lawyer. We're talking about picking judges, Judicial Merit Screening Committee. Um, yeah, this is kind of a, um, and, you know, the difference is Harpootlian's at the end of a lawyering career. <laughs> you know, Rutherford's in the middle of a lawyering um, career. I doubt Harpootlian cares much who the judge is or not at this point in his, uh, in his life. But uh, it kind of made me feel better. I mean, I've, I've talked a lot about the Republicans can't get their feces consolidated. You know, we're arguing with one another, mad with one another. Uh, you know, we're watching people that, I mean, Michael Steele was chairman of the GOP. I mean, he was the Republican national chairman. And now he's an MSNBC hack, you know, just, just indicting or, or condemning everything Trump does more than the Democrats do. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hi, David, you're on. Hey, man, you talk about Harpootley, and um, think about how much exposure he got in that Murdoch case. So, got a lot of free advertising. He's celebrity now, man. Uh, speaking about celebrities, I uh, think about a movie trial back in a Washington, D.C. courtroom. And I'm looking for this moment. Uh, did you believe the election was stolen? And I don't want to cuss on your so show, but you're dang right I did. You know, they're kind of looking for that moment. And here's another question they may ask, but did you order the insurrection? Uh, and the sad part about all this is that hopefully this all goes nowhere, but it's all about the media. It's that, that, man, they have made so much money off of Donald Trump, and they're going to they're gonna ride that wagon as far as they can. And the sad part about it is today at 4 o'clock or whatever, after this happens, you're going to see Jake and Wolf and Dana, Bakari and Dan. They're going to come on and talk about all this stuff. And then you're going to watch some doggone BlackRock commercial, and they're going to claim that, oh, we're just great people. We take care of the teachers' pensions. Uh, so when I see these people like Jack Smith, all I think about this cat, he's auditioning. For a book deal, he's auditioning for CNN, and that's the sad part about that whole industry, political industry. I'm a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I'll be Smith's carried the water for the cathedral. I mean, he's the um, he's the triathlete who isn't scared of anything, right? I mean, he will, when he walks in the courtroom, you mess with Jack Smith if you want to. Uh, a lot of the others are daisies. I mean, you know, they're, they're not going to get in there and, and throw punches and, and slug it out. You know, Smith's known as a guy who will do that. It's probably his only redeeming quality. To, to be the um kind of uh, the um the heavy, you know, the, uh, Washington probably doesn't have very many heavies. Dana Perino said when she made her mind up, she was you know it was a point in her life she wanted to get married. Perino said she started looking around for you know a husband. I mean, not necessarily going out every night to a club. I mean, I'm going to a club to try and find a husband. 
I doubt that's the way Perino rolled, but she said she noticed that nobody in Washington, everybody, every man had soft hands and pudgy bellies. <laughs> and she didn't want a man with soft hands and pudgy bellies. She wanted a man, you know, I don't want to say with callous hands and you see where I'm headed. I mean, Jack Smith would be the exception. I mean, he, he's a triathlete. Mess with him if you'd like, Donald Trump. Um, let's go back to Q if you don't mind. I, I found this, and I, I mean, I, I want to give Dick his fair due because uh, he kind of teased it up. It's about 45 seconds long. So you heard we're doing this the weirdest way. We're playing the back heart, the back part first. But um, I, I want to feel good about myself, so I want to hear Democrats <laughs> argue hear with one another. You ready? Let me, let, me, let me finish. If there was ever a case, ever a case, that demonstrates why we need this is a speech this is it. No, this is my dignity with being kept in the dark, being lied to, and this is what's wrong with our judicial selection pro- uh, process. And Representative Rutherford, you should be, I know you're sitting on the smarkin' and smarkin' views out the votes. You're going to go ahead and break the law. You're going to go ahead and get the whoever you want to be master in equity. Um, and this is why I will be writing uh, Rankin, Chairman Rankin and Speaker of the House and ask them, to begin to have hearings on judicial merit selection. The public believes the process is fixed. That's the fixture right there. The public believes the process is fixed, and that's the fixer right there. That's not a Republican yelling at a Democrat or a Democrat yelling at a Republican. I mean, that, that's two lawyer legislators, both Democrats, talking about master and equity, magistrates, judges, and the likes. I don't know. I mean, I, and, I, and I give Jay Jordan a lot of credit here. Um, Jay's a lawyer. Jay's a legislator. Jay has said to me multiple times, on and off the air, there's really no good way to do it. I mean, that, you know, it's one of the few places in, in South Carolina politics that you can honestly talk yourself out of or into uh, one opinion or another. Uh, you know, I, I want to elect judges. Do you really? I want to appoint judges. Do you really? I want the governor to to appoint him and then advise a consent. Do you really? You, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it's such an, and it's the application of justice. I mean, it's one of the most serious fundamentals government is responsible for, and there's no good way to do it. Um, I mean, I, I tend to be on board with more governor's involvement. Maybe the governor could have more appointees on the Judicial Merit Screening Committee. I mean, could we do that? Could that lessen the influence of the General Assembly? In other words, if um, I'm trying to think of how many members on the joint uh, judicial merit screening, I don't know the answer to that. But but let's say there's, I mean, for argument's sake, let's say there's nine, and the governor appoints one or two. Let's double the number of appointees the governor has, and they have a more weighted representation on. I mean, the governor's the, the state's elected leader. I mean, you know, whether we like, whether the governor has enormous responsibilities or not, it's the highest elected position in our state. And I think that position carries some weight. And I think, you know, if the governor, I don't know what the number is. We, we may talk about this tomorrow. But, but if the governor were allowed to appoint a couple of more members to the screening committee, maybe that's a good compromise. Maybe that's a good path forward. I'm not saying it's the answer because I agree with Jay. I mean, we're trying to find the, the least of the bad ways to pick judges in South Carolina. Um, and, and you you know, that's a conundrum when you're trying to find the least bad, when you've kind of admitted there ain't no real good way to do this, let's find the least bad way. <laughs> I, I just think having more governor's influence is probably a good thing. Let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan. Morning, Daphne. 
Good morning, guys. Uh, I've been listening to uh, everybody talk about what's happening to Trump. I've watched over the years, and I have concluded that the Democrats and the rhinos, the elites in Washington, actually enacted and were successful in an unarmed coup against Trump. What happened on January the 6th has happened before when the Democrats, uh, dozens of them, stood up in 2016. When they stood up against Bush, they tried to overturn, but the difference was Trump had so many supporters in Washington that day, and that's what infuriates them. But so many people showed up, and Trump actually asked for the National Guard, Pelosi and the mayor and the police chief asked for armed guards, too. But they overruled because they had their plan in place. Trump thought that there would be infiltrators that would cause problems. Now, everything that's happened to him that they've accused him of is what they have been guilty of. So they have actually succeeded in a coup against Trump without lifting a single rifle. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. So, so let's go down that road a bit. Got a couple of minutes here. Could you've heard this saying, be careful what you ask for. I mean, could this go down the road of be careful what you ask for? I mean, in all honesty, guys, I mean, even the most staunch Trump supporter, I mean, Rev would be one. I want to ask him this. Okay. I mean, you don't doubt Trump did things that were out of bounds. No. I mean, you would expect him. I mean, he's a rough and tumble business guy. You know how it is, man. You got to do what you got to do to survive, right? And he was fighting for himself. Sure, and that, 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 he didn't want to lose. That, there you go. I mean, that, so, so, I mean, I, I think if somebody told Dave Baker, hey, man, Trump might have stretched a little bit here. He might have, um, you know, he might have um, zigged when he should have zagged. He might have bobbed when he should have weaved. Rev would probably say, eh, he probably did. <laughs> I mean, he, all honesty, he probably did. Uh, let me ask you, so, so if, if somebody told you that Trump carried things from the White House that he shouldn't have carried, you'd respond how? <laughs> Probably did. <laughs> of course he did. Um, and when they asked him back, Trump said, ah, you can get some of this back. You ain't getting all of it. Some of this belongs to me. I'm keeping some of this ba- stuff. As as probably all former presidents have well, done. I mean, but I think he would be an extreme case. Yeah. I mean, he's called his own shots all of his life, right? He's not worked for the state of Arkansas, the state of Texas, uh, you know, uh, the Chicago political machine. And I'm talking about Bush, Clinton, Obama. Uh, I mean, Trump's been kind of in that rough and tumble business world where you make it up as you go at times. I'm not excusing, uh, you know, but it, but that's just the nature of the life he's led. So when somebody said Donald Trump carried things for the White House he shouldn't have, you know what I'd answer? Probably did. Donald Trump didn't give it back when they asked for it back. He probably didn't. Donald Trump, you can't tell him a damn thing. I mean, he's going to do things the way he wants to do things, you know, come blank or high water. He probably did. You're probably right. But but I, I just think once you once you get that guy in his element, in his arena, and and kind of um, he's he's Donald Trump's not going to be uncomfortable defending himself. 
I, I just don't buy that. I mean, if you think he's going to freeze uh, in that moment, you know, when the bright lights are shining, maybe he, uh, maybe he testifies, maybe he doesn't. But, I mean, I just don't think Trump's the kind of guy that gets stage fright. I mean, his entire life has been center stage. Some of these others that, that you could compel and force to testify, uh, like Pelosi, did he ask for security? You know, um, I, I just think some of these folks don't want the bright lights. They, they, they don't want that center stage. And could there be an opportunity to, to, to maybe lose the case, but you score a lot of political points. You bring things to light. It's easy to say something on MSNBC. It's, it's, it's much more complicated when you put your hand on a Bible. We still do that, don't we? And well, you say the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, under fear of perjury. I mean, that's a whole different animal. Rachel Maddow um, is not the person kind of leading you along. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, uh, there, there are some days I feel led to be a cheerleader. I mean, there, there are some days I feel like the world's beating us down. Uh, Charles started with talking about the media, academia, all these liberal biases that dominate um, the discourse. This is cathartic and therapeutic for me. You know, to be able to wake up in the morning. I mean, I don't like waking up at 4.30 and 6 o'clock. I ain't quite as spry as I am at, uh, at, at 9.53. <laughs> but but it's, very, it's very helpful for me to try and sort through these things with you. I just hope it provides some sort of, um, I don't want to say comfort or, or solace, but encouragement would be a better word. Um, Josh, I, I'll ask you. You're a young buck. All right. D- d- does it help you to be a part of group therapy? I mean, you're a conservative. Yeah. And, and, and you, you know how the odds are stacked against us. And sometimes it can be insurmountable or appear to be insurmountable. Does, does it help you as a young person to wake up and know that we're going to be uh, kind of a team rallying the forces, trying to create encouragement, trying to explain things in a way the media won't historically explain things? It does. It's good to know that people that think like you are out there, and I can speak from experience because I went to – App State and a liberal arts degree for uh, four years. So I, I know what it's like to fake it till you make it. There's another world out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't quite think as um, as we do. And, and I've said it before. I don't have any desire to indoctrinate or brainwash them. I mean, that's not what I'm here for. But, but I think there are days that we need encouragement of one another. And I think this past week, uh, I think w- when you try to get your arms around the front runner, of the Republican Party being indicted and potentially incarcerated by his political rival, you, you kind of wonder how we got here. You know, you do. I mean, you, you, and, and you, when, you, when you're saying about, well, why are you just continue to defend Trump? Well, I mean, really? I mean, that, to me, it makes it easier and easier and easier to defend Trump. I mean, if they leave Trump alone, it'd probably be harder to defend Trump. But, but you know, and I, I don't want to say persecution because I sound a little bit preachy when I go down that road, but, but we do have a situation in America today that has no precedent and how it plays out, who knows, but we'll be here doing the best we can to help one another through it together. Talk tomorrow.